Welcome to this special episode of Bickering Peaks. Today's topic is all about the autobiography of FBI Special Agent Dale Cooper, My Life, My Tapes. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome. <There> we <laughs> Welcome to this episode of Bickering Peaks. Yes. It is a special episode. Yes. About? The autobiography of FBI Special Agent Dale Cooper, My Life, My Tapes. It's quite a mouthful. Yeah. Um, and it's it's quite an interesting book. And we couldn't just discuss this on our own. We yes. had to bring in a very special guest. We have uh, Eileen. And she is Skyping in with us from Wisconsin. So hi, Eileen. How are you today? Hi. I'm doing well. Um, been looking forward to this. Yeah. Thank you for inviting me on. Oh, absolutely. We are so excited to have someone else to talk about this this book with because... Um, Aiden doesn't really have a lot to say, and I feel like um, Eileen and I did a little bit of a, a test run last night, and we spoke about this book for three hours. So, yeah, a little test run, just, just a little. Just a little mini one. Um, and it was great. So we got a lot of really great ideas flowing, and Aiden, right before we, we started recording, is like, yeah, you guys are going to be carrying this whole conversation, because yeah. I don't have much to say. I'll just be going, mm-hmm, oh yeah, yeah, oh totally. Yeah. yeah. So... Prepare for that All for right. a couple it'll hours, be, yeah. Yeah, but that, that'll be fine because I think I think we've got. I, I think you'll stuff. jump in. There's a lot of good stuff that's right. that we'll be able to bring up here. So um, okay. Before we get started, though, uh, what we always do with um, with guests on the pod is uh, we want to ask you, Eileen. First of all, how did you get introduced to Twin Peaks? What was your your how did when did you first enter Twin Peaks? Well, I was thinking about this the other night, and the truth is my first experience with Twin Peaks was watching Scooby-Doo, Mystery Incorporated. Oh, really? They used the Red Room. Right. Yes. And <laughs> I didn't know what it was. I was really confused. Uh-huh. And then I think maybe two, three years later, it might have been after that, when my friend, my good friend from college, said, hey, we have to watch this show. And it's weird, but you're going to like it because you like everything that's weird. So we sat down to watch it. And I couldn't wait to always watch with her. So then I was watching it by myself. And then I'd rewatch everything with her because I didn't want to tell her that I was watching it without her. <laughs> and um, that, was, that was my introduction to it. I think I watched it within three or four days total. Wow. Wow. That that's impressive. Yeah, that that's... is quick. Yeah. I know we talked about that a little bit that um, when you watch it so quickly, you kind of forget when things happen and, and the episodes kind of blend together. And that was my experience. Aiden, I think we watched it the first time when you saw it in like a week. Yeah, it was about a weekend. Maybe. So it's um, it's it's tough to remember the the episodes. Yeah, that initial, but, yeah, yeah. But that immersive experience is very cool and very unique to like binge watching, mm-hmm. the binge watching generation. I... I we yeah, talked to other people yeah. who've wa- who watched it when it was originally airing and having to wait like six weeks between when they went on hiatus. Yeah. That would have killed me. That would have sucked. Yeah. No, definitely. I can't imagine that. No. Yeah. No, I know. It would just be <laughs> murder. It's going to be hard enough with season three having yeah. to wait one week between episodes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's Yeah. I hadn't thought about that until just now, but yeah, that's going to be. But it'll be good because then we can digest each episode as yes, it comes. Exactly. And for us podcasters, so. we'll be able to uh, to have some time in between to, yes, to uh, 
yes, do our thing and yeah. discuss appropriately. Yes. Get our get our our thoughts together. Yeah, and then have them dash the next week when yeah, everything exactly. falls apart. So, but I'm looking forward to that. That'll be fun. Yeah, um, Eileen, do you have a favorite character or a favorite episode or like a favorite moment in the show that you want to talk about? Well, I love Audrey. Yeah. I think that's firmly established between the two of us. Audrey's <laughs> fabulous. Yeah. Um, my favorite episode is definitely the finale. I love Beyond Life and Death. The last 20 minutes are mm. avant-garde art yeah. on your television, and there's just nothing else like it in the world. Yeah. That's a, Yeah, that's a great... I, most people give the pilot or um, uh, the episode where we find out uh, who killed Laura. Mm-hmm. And you forget that the finale is is such a tour de force. It's really yeah. yeah. It's yeah. It's something else. It's it's really stunning and it really sets up. Well, I mean, yeah, the cliffhangers and everything. Mm-hmm. That, yeah, it's just it's a great way to <laughs> end a show, I guess. Yeah. Or at least set it up for a, a twenty six year old sequel. Yes. So, yes. Yeah. <laughs> no kidding. Um, okay, so as we mentioned, we're going to be discussing the autobiography of FBI Special Agent Dale Cooper. Um, This book was released in May of 1991. Actually, May 1st, 1991, which is May Day, which is interesting in itself um, for a couple of reasons. But um, anyway, it was written by Scott Frost, and he also wrote the audiobook that was nominated for a Grammy that Kyle McLaughlin recorded. um, And that was released around the a little bit after that, I think. I don't have the date for that, but so anyway. The, so the audiobook is not the same thing as this. The audiobook correct? is not the same. It's it's tapes from um, Diane, right? Yes, and they're all within the last year before he goes to Twin Peaks, if I remember correctly. You've listened to it. I have listened to it, but it's been a while. And I, for the longest time, I conflated the two, and it took me a little while to remember that they're they're two separate entities. This book has not been released as an audiobook. Mm. Um, and it and it stops like it, this. The book starts when he's thirteen, and it goes up until um, the day that Laura's body is discovered. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we don't get anything from within the series of Twin Peaks at all. Yeah. So it's definitely a prequel to the to the show in that sense. Um, while the Diane tapes kind of, I think they include some okay. some things from the show. Okay. So, um, but I don't remember. Okay. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the autobiography <laughs> yeah, yeah. here. Um, Aiden, when yeah. when was the first time you read it? The book? This this oh, time. It was... Last week? Yeah, last week. <laughs> I think I finished it last week. And okay. started it last week. It was a very short, quick read, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Eileen, when did you first read the book? Um, I first read it immediately after finishing the show. And then for my reread, I just started two days ago again. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you've only read it twice then? Yeah. Yeah. Same here. I've only I read it like you as soon as the show ended, and then uh, or as soon as I finished my rewatch, and then um, just read it and finished it last night uh, for this podcast. Aiden laughed at me. He's like, only twice. Yeah. But it is. It's a quick read. <laughs> like it's not. Uh, it's not a, a terribly detailed or involved book. It's fairly quick. We delved into it a little bit deeper because we wanted to look yeah. at the symbolism and everything. But you can just read it quickly through, and it's it's only what, hundred and seven pages, twenty. Yeah, yeah. so it's it's that a really short. yeah, it's a short book, and it's it's not, you know, people like to compare it to the Secret Diary of Laura Palmer, in the sense that it that they're both, the early life, um, stories of Laura and Dale. They are similar, 
But Laura's diary is so much more harrowing and hard to get through. Yeah. This book has elements of that, but it's definitely not as no. difficult. And it kind of obscures a lot of the really difficult yeah. pieces. Yeah. It's not Dale as... Yeah. retreats into himself. Yes, he does. When difficult things happen. Yeah. He, he stops recording or... Um, yeah, it gets These very kind of like things or something. Yeah, it's, yeah. Eileen, yeah. I think you've you've used the term reticent to describe his yes. character, and that's I think a really good one because it's it's like he is holding back. And in, we learn the most about him in those moments. I think when when we miss whole periods of his life, I think sometimes we have three years we miss. We yeah. have a six month period we miss. Yeah, where he just, just stops. Yeah, and there's no contact. No yeah. one knows where he is. Yeah. And we learn more about him in the moments before and after that than we do at any other point in the book. Yeah, exactly, exactly, which is really interesting because um, it adds to that mystery and there is no way to, to solve it. It's all up to us to speculate what happened, where did he go, who did he meet, mm-hmm. what did he do. Um, so yeah, that is that is really, uh, it's, it's kind of an interesting way to to write a story is like with this frame narrative of him recording these tapes um and then to have very similar to in Laura's diary with the pages ripped out we do have these long periods and some of them like Eileen you said they're periods where he's just not recording and nobody knows where he is and there are other periods where for uh reasons related to his work the tapes have been redacted or um, because of mysterious circumstances, his tapes have been destroyed or confiscated, right? right? So The fire. Um, the fire, mm-hmm. exactly. So there's um, that also adds to the mystery of it. Um, and it it begs a lot of questions that I think we're going to get into in, in our conversation today. So, right. Um, it also changes yeah, things when he's speaking to Diane. Mm-hmm. So after he starts talking to Diane, we lose a lot of, uh, detail heavy yes facts that he used to present when it was private mm-hmm. exactly so that changes the dynamic of the story about halfway through it does it starts to become it, at the beginning it's much more like a diary and then at the end it's much more like um like a daily journal almost of just ho-hum yeah. activities and yeah yeah mostly related to his work yeah um, which all is interesting because it is the 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 narrative thrust of his involvement in the Twin Peaks world is his, his FBI yeah. investigation. So that makes total sense. But um, but yeah, it is it is an interesting shift and it's fun. So what did you guys think when you first finished the book? What were your initial thoughts just upon putting the book down for the first time? Um, Aiden, you can go ahead. Okay, uh, I. W- <laughs> I was kind of underwhelmed, a little confused, and um, I don't know. I mean, I was amused. I found the book. It's like you said. It's a it's a simple read. It's it's easy to read. It's easy to get into and enjoy. There's some really funny parts yeah. um, that I quite enjoyed and made it even more fun to read. Mm-hmm. Um, but I found it a little disappointing in terms of it didn't feel like the exact same Cooper that we meet at the start of the show. I think Cooper goes through a bit of an evolution throughout the series anyways so I don't think it's it's necessarily that his character is static and what you what you see at the start is the only aspect of Cooper's right. character um, but at the same time the book didn't feel quite on point uh, mm-hmm. in terms of his character yeah. I found there were some aspects that were a little not lacking but a little uh, I don't know 
just a little off about his character. You know, there there was a lot of his, you know, um, goofiness and his sense of humor, I thought, was really, really uh, well done. Mm -hmm. Um, But some of, like, just the odd character choices, um, describing how, you know, like, he didn't seem to have the the intuition. Right. And I think, Lindsay, you and I had talked about this before, that I think that's one part that the book really kind of... Glosses over a little bit, yeah, yeah. Misses just a little bit. Um, is that he's really presented as more of a Sherlock character? You know, right. he follows. He has, he's he's a better deductor than he is uh, an intuitor. Yeah. Um, which in comparison to the to the series, he does he does both really well, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I found that a little mm-hmm. off putting. Yeah, no, I really enjoyed this book, but uh, it, yeah, it, it lacked a little something for me. But um, yeah, I still enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Eileen, what what did you think? Um. The first time I read it, and I did it in one sitting, it was really quick, um, only took me a couple, an hour and a half, maybe two hours. Yeah. Um, I know I missed a bunch of things the first time around. And I felt much the same as I did ending it this time, where it's like there's a bad taste in your mouth, right? but you want to do it all over again anyway. <laughs> right. Um, I agree with a lot of what Aiden said about certain character choices seem really on point and other ones seem kind of off, like they're shifted three inches to the right. Mm. Um, One thing that really hit me besides the intuition was um, his tiny moments of um, malicious glee. Mm. And certain certain elements, he blows up a mailbox, um, (laughs) he encourages his dad to take out his... um, frustration about Native American lands being taken away by um, sawing in half a stop sign. Yeah. <laughs> so little little acts of aggression like that. Mm-hmm. And um, there's more of that that we'd get into at a later point. Yeah. I also think it feels like you're kind of just floating. You float with him through his life. There's right. no trajectory even though he says a couple times about everything in my life has been guiding me to join the FBI or to this point but it still feels like he kind of just floats and you float with him yeah, yeah. that's no, actually that's, a, good good, point. that's yeah. a really good way of putting it because it does feel like it and and he comes to different realizations throughout the course of the book that um, well and throughout the course of his life about things like you know his political leanings and questions about that and questions about religion and he doesn't seem to be as certain which makes sense because, I mean, he starts the book at 13. Who knows what they're doing at 13, right? Mm-hmm. So he's going to yeah. be in this process of discovery. And it's really great that you get to see that that process of discovery um, and kind of go along with him as he discovers it. So Yeah, but I, but I, I agree. I think it it's like a constant discovery. Yeah. Like even by the end of the book, you're like he still feels like he's, I don't know. I mean, yeah. and some of it is understandable, like the part about he still wants to find a, a woman to, sure. to love, which is, yeah. you know, very on point with uh, what we see in season two opener. Sure. Especially. Right. So Definitely. I think there's pieces there. But um, yeah, I, you're right. The book as a whole doesn't really lead anywhere, which I guess is kind of fine because maybe well, that's, that's what life, lives. Right? Yeah. Life yeah. isn't yeah. really like that. So I guess it, it rings true in that in that sense. Sure. In some moments, he seems to have real clarity about things. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a point where he says that evil has a face. Yes. But after that, he regresses back into questioning what evil is and all, all these things. So it's like he comes to some sort of an understanding and then he falls away from it. 
he's he's a very influx character in this book. Yeah, and that actually, that's a good way to start, I think, because one of the things that we talked about in our little pre-chat last night was some of the themes that we wanted to go into with the book. And one of the big ones that kind of overarches the entire book itself is this idea of enlightenment versus establishment, or as Aiden and I have been um, talking about it in the podcast proper, is like man versus nature, right? Um, So we might use the the terms interchangeably, but... um, but I like the idea of it being enlightenment versus establishment because, Eileen, like you were the one who pointed this out, that he goes off to nature a lot. And those are the moments where he kind of reaches that point of enlightenment, right? Yeah. Um, he goes to a cave a couple times. Right. There, he speaks about sitting in a cave and having, um, we call them ancestral memories, where you're recalling what it must have felt like to be an ancient early man says living in a cave. Um, He goes to New York and he starts off his journey in Central Park. Yeah. So he oftentimes, um, before before he joins the FBI, um, he's put in his paperwork. He goes um, out camping to prepare himself. Yeah. Yeah, it's almost like like a thing that he does to, like, recharge or... I don't even I don't know if he would call it that, but that's what it seems like he's doing. And and whenever he comes back from these um these natural visits, it's like he he has a kind of understanding or a different way of looking at the world. Uh Eileen, I think you described it best last night when you talked about it being like a scale, right? The scales tip in one way or the other. Right. So Right. He flip flops. Yeah. And then and then he comes so so he he goes out into nature and and, or he's in he's in civilization or within the establishment and and the order of the of the societal world is weighing him down. Then he goes off into nature and the balance tips the other way and all of a sudden the 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 natural order is he comes back to society with that being the the weightiest part. And then gradually it erodes away and he becomes much more entrenched in the establishment again. Um, which I thought was a really interesting way of, of framing those moments when he goes away and comes back and goes away and comes back. But none of those epiphanies ever really stick or they don't yeah. seem to stick anyway. Definitely. He has, he has no happy medium. Yeah. He overexposes himself yes. to the extremes. Yes. And um, I'm reminded of in Great Gatsby when they talk about when they go off to the city and they want to be in the country. Mm-hmm. And we're in the, when they're in the country, they want to be in the city. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And he, he can't find a happy medium between that. No, and that, and that seems to be a, a common thread through a lot of his experiences, is that it's, he, everybody, we all exist in this kind of gray state um, of experience, but for Dale Cooper, he he wants it to be black and white, and he thinks he it ought to be black and white, and so he's constantly striving for black and white, and and I think that might be the source of his frustration, well, part of it anyway. Mm-hmm. Well, definitely, and mm-hmm. he he does that in everything, everything he yes. does. Um, when he first meets um, Andy, and I won't get into too much of this. Andy is one of his uh, lovers along the way of the story. Yeah. Um, and she eventually does dump him, and he says something about 
she must not have loved me and this is what it must feel like to to be dumped yeah and so he automatically equates being in a relationship with love yes at that point right where he doesn't necessarily before but ever post his relationship with her it seems to be along those lines where it's all or nothing yes exactly yeah, there's no there's no half feelings. There's no uh, grace period. It's like jump in with both feet. And and that can be great and exciting, but it leads to a lot of disappointment for him, I think. In all in all respects of his life, he yep. orders all the Nixon buttons. Yes. And then when he finds out that Nixon's not that great, he <laughs> sends them all back yeah. to the White House. Yeah. Like that's that it's just such an extreme response to things. And and you're right. He does it in so many places he's such a drama queen <laughs> he really is he is to- he's a total drama queen but it fits with the idea like you know we said he starts off at 13 and i guess let's just back up for a second because the the whole idea is that he he at 13 for christmas gets a reel-to-reel tape player um a tape recorder and and that's what starts this whole thing off. So he starts narrating so many different aspects of his life, including his early investigations with the 24th Street gang who stole his mm. friend's bike. Yeah. Um, and some of those investigate, like he, he does, he goes whole hog into these investigations and really like within the first couple of days, his tape recorder is stolen. And, you know, like it, he, he doesn't really know how to moderate any of his responses to the external stimuli that he which a lot of people have interpreted as him maybe being you know on the spectrum or something he might have some kind of sensory disorder Mm -hmm. um i'm not sure that i would necessarily go there but it certainly does beg some questions right that what what's going on with him there um that uh you brought up his uh andy one of his lovers um, we do get a lot of details about his sexual experiences from uh, early puberty all the way through to, um, well, through to 1989, yeah. right? So uh, from the age of 13 to the age of 34, 35. Yeah, we get a lot of, of his, well, all of his sexual, ex- well, most of his sexual experiences. Yeah, yeah. There's some periods where we're not yeah. sure. But, we um, missed the three years during which he definitely lost his virginity. Yes, right. So we don't have that part. Yeah. But we can infer from, from what he said and, and his actions before and after beca- and, and just the way that his behavior is that, that he, it was probably a very intense experience for him. Everything he experiences is very intense. Yeah. Yes. Um, but yes, yeah, so, this, so this idea of the... Um, this nature versus man or establishment versus uh, enlightenment is kind of this overarching theme that we've established in our in our rewatch for the show. Um, it definitely carries through here. And some of the other little things that fall underneath that we're going to talk about uh, over the course of this discussion are like um, the dreams, the, as- the dream aspects mm-hmm. that come into play in this novel. Um, so many dreams and so many things that come from dreams it's super fascinating so we're gonna be talking about that we're gonna be talking about death dale cooper experiences an inordinate amount of death in his Mm -hmm. in his life um his search for evil and uh some of the the hints that are dropped that connect to elements that we've been presented in the tv show um 
like the lodges, which aren't explicitly stated, but are heavily implied, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. And then obviously um, his sexual exploits, which are uh, numerous. Numerous. And, <laughs> and, and very, very fun to read and enlightening, I think, for us as readers to uh, come to understand some aspects of Dale Cooper. There are inconsistencies, though, and we'll, we'll touch on those as we go along as well. Inconsistencies being um, in, uh, time problems, the dates that don't really match up with what we know from the show, and uh, some plot inconsistencies that come up um, just with, if, for example, his investigation into Teresa Banks's murder, which doesn't jibe with the Firewalk With Me uh, plot that we get. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of how we're going to frame our discussion. Uh, keeping in mind always that there's this enlightenment versus establishment thing that, that seems to be going on. So um, let's start talking about the dreams because I his think his mother's dream, his mother's dream. Yeah. One. Yeah. This is how the story starts. It's literally like the dreaming. third page, right? Yeah. Yes. Um, that she's alone in a field and birds and mass are blocking out the sky and there's no light. Yeah. Like that's fascinating that, that so early on, it's very, very reminiscent of in Laura's Secret Diary, where at the end of like the first or second entry, she says, I hope Bob doesn't come tonight. And it's like this, this jarring shock of, okay, what is this? What his mother's having these, these horrible dreams that are scaring her so badly. And they really reminded me of Sarah Palmer and the visions that she has, right? And brings up some questions about the heredity of um, this supernatural gift or, uh, curse curse yeah <laughs> i'm reminded of the phrase um the gifted and the damned yes they use that in the show exactly which ones they are yes because it certainly doesn't seem like these are i mean they're prophetic dreams but they're not the kind of they're not like major briggs's vision that he has um what, that he tells bobby in the season opener of uh, season two um where right. it's like a positive being happy in exactly the that's like that's like a vision that he has that's that's positive. These are dreams. Dreams are different than visions, right? And and it seems like these are the people who have these dreams don't really seem to be gifted at all. They they really do seem to be damned, yeah. don't they? Yeah. I don't know. I would definitely say so. Yeah. Especially um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Sarah Palmer being probably the foremost example of Right. everything she sees something bad happens like yeah everything's around bob or yeah she doesn't have any good visions they're (laughs) all omens of death or destruction or evil Mm -hmm. and it seems like that's what his mother is is hinting at because he says we we don't get him saying that these dreams are an ongoing thing but it's kind of implied that he's not surprised that his mother had a dream he's like well she had another dream or something Mm -hmm. right so we can I, i think we can presume that these have been happening for a long time um and when Dale has his first dream, it's on page 15, he tells his mom about this dream and she instinctively knows that it's like she understands what he's going through and she can guide him through that process of what to do. Right, um, and she says not to let him into the room because it's right. all about somebody screaming at him and he says that it becomes animalistic. Yes, at the end yes that's trying to break through this door yeah to see him through this door yeah and i always interpreted that as the door to his room which i don't it's not clear that that is what 
He's I don't, actually, yeah. I don't think so anyway. Yeah. But I think it's mental door ultimately. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. I think it is. It just reminded me of the way that Bob comes through Laura's window in Firewalk with me and in her diary. Uh, in her yeah. diary. So mm-hmm. it immediately when you read that, you're it's it's very early again, very early in the book. You're like, "Oh my god, like is is this Bob? Is Bob trying to get into Dale Cooper's room as a, a 13-year-old boy? Is he being visited by a lodge spirit or by Bob himself? Is his mother being visited by, or has she been visited by a lodge spirit? Um, I'm, I'm sure that that's what we're meant to understand and, from that. Yeah, and there's right. no description of the man. No. But they mention this man in the dreams multiple times. Yes. The only time that Cooper gives him a name mm-hmm. is... There's a really indistinct dream where he's behind the door and hearing somebody talking on the other side of the door. Yes. And he's not sure who they are, but he thinks one might be his mother or Marie. Yep. And the other one is evil. I think he, he says, says it's death. He, he thinks death it's death. or evil. Yeah. Death. You're right. It's death. Yeah. No, and, that, and you're right. That's the only time that he ever really ascribes, other than his fear... He doesn't say anything else about this man other than in this that one moment. You're right. So, and then after his first encounter with this dream that he has, he becomes sick for several days. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Dale is asthmatic, and that's something that comes up fairly early on. That his mother used to sit with him overnight and rub vapor rub on his chest while he when he couldn't breathe. Um, and after his first dream, he becomes so ill he's hospitalized, and for a period of it's not long, maybe a couple of days or something. But I thought that was really interesting as well because he he brings up later, and we'll talk about this more when we, we get into the subject and discussion of evil, but he mentions later on that he wonders if evil is a, is a germ or a parasite or something that yeah. travels from person to person. and Or is it carried on the wind? Yes, exactly. So, and that, that really made me think of... Um, we, we just listened to, uh, not long ago, the Counter Esperanto podcast's uh, discussion of The Secret Diary, and they questioned whether or not Bob was uh, a possessing entity or some kind of infectious um, viral entity, which I think the book seems, this book seems to uh, hint that, that it is past like a germ or something mm-hmm. from person to person or from in you know mother to son or in some way yeah or spirit world to real world yeah dream world to real world or something like there's a lot of that too so um Mm -hmm. so i thought that was that was quite telling yeah i think there's a particular correlation there after his mother dies because his mother has the same dreams about the man in the room trying to get through the door yeah and after she dies then the man's closer to Dale, like he has more dreams and yeah. trying to get through the door and the, the knob shakes, yes. I think he says. Mm. Yes. And so once his mother's gone, it's like there's one more line of defense is broken down. Right. Which is like, it It does seem like his mother is is protecting him in some way. From this, she seems like a very sad person. Like she doesn't, she doesn't get a lot of uh, uh, screen time for lack yeah. of a better word. Page time, yeah. Yeah, she dies fairly early on um, of a brain aneurysm. And... Uh, but yeah, everything up to that point is is not positive stuff, really, yeah. about him. It's, it's either no. she's taking care of him 
or she's warning him about the man in the dream. Yeah. That's she doesn't even really, really have much of personality. No, no, no. She's barely a character, actually. She's yeah. more like an ominous figure and just... She could have been anybody, really, yeah. and giving him the same kind of information and stuff. I can't um, even visualize it. Yeah. Like, yeah. I have no idea what she looks like. No, I and I have a hard time. I think, Eileen, you mentioned um, yesterday that you kind of pictured her being a blonde. Yeah. But even even that, like, it's very, like... Yeah. It's, it's hard to I'm imagine. Certain. Yeah. Um... But we do get a sense after she dies. There's a period where she's in, like she's comatose in the hospital, and Dale goes to visit her, and he makes an entry where he says he doesn't know what to do without her. Like she was just here, and he's lost without her. And I think that's very telling as well that she was, um, you know, if you want to talk about guiding spirits or guiding forces in his life, she was an early one, and she disappears on him unexpectedly. And he's right. left to fend for himself. And I think that's, as a, a 13-year-old boy, would be very traumatic. And uh, certainly clouds a lot of his later relationships with women, but with people in general, I think. Mm-hmm. And the way and he as- relates to, to, the, to the world. Right. And especially his dad. The yes. interactions with his dad are different, I think, because they're two different people. Right. His father is very much an enlightenment figure. Yes. And... Dale is very much establishment at that age as yeah. a child. Yeah. Um, so he doesn't really understand his father, and I don't think it's that they don't get along. It's just that they, he doesn't understand him. Yeah, they're coming from so, two different places. Right. Yeah. So we hear more about his father as a result of that. Yeah. Because he's still trying to figure him out, too. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Um, yeah, that's that's a really interesting point. Um, we haven't talked about his brother. Dale has a brother in Emmett. in the book. Emmett, who is a draft dodger, a draft yeah. dodger who fled to Canada to avoid fighting in the Vietnam War, and uh, and we get little bits and pieces of the information. Like I think one of the the first things that his mother explains to him that uh, Emmett is in Canada and he won't be able to return until he's logged every tree. Yeah, um, he says he's gone to be a lumberjack. Mm-hmm. Like obviously Dale figures out that that's not the case, but. Um, and later on, they, they have a kind of a negative reaction to one another. I think Emmett calls him an establishment pig or something yeah. once he right. hears that he's an FBI agent. So so I think Emmett and and his father um, are on that side of things. They're like the... I would hesitate to call... They might be hippies, but not like Marie hippie, which yeah. we'll get to. Yeah. Um, but they're on that side of the spectrum, whereas Dale very early on is like, I'm going to be an, an Eagle Scout and he's drawn to J. Edgar rules. Hoover and he wants to become an FBI agent. And the rules, exactly. Like, that's how he orders his life and that's how he thinks meaning comes from his life is by following these rules to the T. And we see that in the show um, to a point. To a point, yeah. We right. do see him as a, as a Boy Scout rule follower. Um, so in, the, in this book, it's interesting because he, he's almost obsessive about the rules. It's like that's the only way he can get anything out of life. Even when he's breaking them. Even when he's breaking mm-hmm. them, yeah. Like sawing he, down a, ch- a stop sign. Stop <laughs> sign and blowing up the yeah. um, mailbox. Yeah, mailbox, yeah. yeah. And at one point um, later on when he's in college, he doesn't understand why the police are arresting uh, the naked college students right, right. for misdemeanor offense. He thinks it's it's stupid. Yeah, yeah, and and that's um, 
it's kind of fun in a way. It's kind of frustrating. A lot of people find it really frustrating because he seems to be very oblivious to a lot of these social cues, which we get that in the pilot of the TV series, but he's very good at picking up on, you know, like Ed and Norma, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas here, in one of the early investigations he has, he comes across like what's very <laughs> obvious. Yeah, but like a sexual, like... <laughs> This was this was fun times in the picnic grounds, right? And he has a ring or an earring. Yeah, yeah. and some then, buttons, oh. but I can't figure <laughs> out what those ruts button. were. <laughs> it's like yeah. it's a not a very wonderful joke. I mean, it's funny and mm. I enjoy reading it, but yeah. at the same time, it's like contrived. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, very yeah. much so. Because he seems like he's fairly young at that point still. Though. I think so he's I still think like he, thirteen. Yeah, 13. so he's he's maybe sexually unawares still. Maybe, I think maybe, but I mean, he's, but it's nineteen sixty-seven. Yes, but he has that whole thing where he's going into the girls' locker room yeah. and sneaking up on right, them. Right. I think Which he is really afterwards. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I think at that point he's still a little unawares Learning. about about sex generally, uh, and. But I mean, and I think that one is played just straight for laughs. I it don't is. Think you're supposed yes. to read too much into it. No, um, I guess that's. But true. it is. Yeah, it's like. He could not expand his mind to mm-hmm. encompass the idea that no, these were two people having sex here. Yeah, yeah. So, but it is very Sherlockian. Yeah, I exactly. I think that's yeah. what what you were getting at, Aiden, was that um, like yeah, he, he he looks and he deduces, and it's not an incorrect deduction. Like that could make sense. It's just not. It's the not the most obvious one. Well, yeah, yeah, and the facts don't fit the the most logical yeah. um, explanation for it. Right, uh, and there's a lot of Sherlock references. Oh yes, at one point he solves a crime. By um, looking at cigar ash, yeah, which is a key factor in um, Sherlock Holmes stories. Yes. Mm-hmm. Anyway, getting back to these dreams. After his mother's death, he dreams of her, and she gives him uh, her ring, or a ring that he's never seen before. Um, small and gold. Yes, a small gold ring. Um, but he dreams of the ring being on his finger, or no, he doesn't yet. He gets the ring, but he doesn't wear it. Right. Um, he receives the ring um, in the dream and he wakes up and it's on his finger and he decides he doesn't want to wear it and he puts it away. Right. Until he can and, remember where, where it came from. Right. Yeah. He wants to know where it came from. He talks to his dad and his dad said that his mother stopped wearing it after they got married and right. he hadn't seen it since. Right. And that's interesting because I, when I first read that, I think I just assumed that she tucked it away somewhere. Right. But me too. But I wonder if maybe it was in the dream world. Maybe she mm-hmm. and it brings up some questions about um the whole idea of with this ring I the wed kind of thing. Mm-hmm. After his mom gets married in real life, she loses this other ring that maybe wedded her to the spirit world or to some kind of supernatural force. And then it only reappears after she's gone, after the marriage to, like, his father is is done. The ring reappears, and she gives it to her son. So it's like a passing on of this, this gift. Yeah, that, that's how I always kind of interpreted it. Yeah, like especially after I read this, I always assumed that the ring was some sort of anchor between the two worlds right. in the TV series. Yeah, and the way that it appears here, very much like in Firewalk with Me and mm-hmm. Laura's ring. Um, yeah, it definitely reminded me of that. Well, it was, it's literally the same, right? Laura yeah. dreams the ring, and the ring shows up in her hand. Yeah. That's exactly what happens to Cooper. Yeah. yeah. He exactly. literally dreams yeah. this ring so, into existence. Yeah, so I always assumed it was some sort of 
yeah, like I said, an anchor yeah. of talisman of some sort that would that would allow access between the two worlds. So then the fact that Laura, I mean, to get off topic now, Laura seems, the ring that she wears, the Owl Cave ring in Fire Walk With Me, is connected to um, the Black Lodge, mm-hmm. it seems, yes. or to Mike anyway. But this ring is connected to the giant, and the giant is kind of connected to, we guess, well, the White we, Lodge? We assume the Maybe. White Lodge. But we don't really know. How you determine what the waiting room is? Yes, I guess. exactly. Mm-hmm. It's it is really yeah. It depends a lot on your interpretation of that scene. So, um, in that dream sequence where he receives the ring, yes, I and we talked about this a little bit last night. I picked up on the fact that he believes it's his mother, and he says, "But she's different. She's young, right? Barely a woman, yeah, and that she leans forward and." tries to tell him something but he can't hear it yeah and it's so reminiscent of his scene with laura yes Mm -hmm. that i wondered why couldn't this possibly be laura we we have the time travel dream thing going on and later on he has another dream in which he believes the woman is his mother but then it turns out to be someone else yeah so it's not as if he hasn't already mistaken someone for being his mother in a dream and it wasn't yeah it's very, very subtle. Mm-hmm. I hadn't considered that until you brought that up last night, Eileen. So um, if it is Laura giving him the ring, that adds a whole new dynamic to their relationship because for this entire period of time, we viewed Cooper as being the person who comes to Twin Peaks to save Laura because Laura needs saving. But Cooper's the one, if he's getting a ring from Laura, in that, that changes things, doesn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah. So... Yes, he he later dreams of the ring um, being on his finger and decides that that's where it'll stay. I think is that the is that the dream where she tries to tell him something, or is that the first dream where she tries to tell him? That um, is the second dream. Okay, he has he he receives the ring. He decides he's not going to wear it. Yeah, and puts it away. And then the second the next time he has a dream, he wakes up and it's on his finger. Yes. Okay, and he keeps it on. He he. That's he where it's. That's where it's going to stay. So it's it's an early instance of him kind of trusting in the dream world, trusting his intuition, or yes. trusting this other otherworldly force to guide him to whatever truth is out there. So um, after a three-year jump, that's when he dreams of his mother, but it ends up being Marie. And that's the same dream where um, death is outside his door. So at this point... Marie, who is his um, his first kind of teenage crush, has already died, and he's um, he thinks he hears her outside the door, and she doesn't want to go. She says something to the effect of "I I'm not ready yet" or something, um, and yeah, and I think he interpreted yeah. he interprets that as being like she's not at rest, like her spirit is not at rest, but. I think the fact that he thinks death is outside the door and he's had these dreams about a man trying to get into his room, it's almost like it, it seems to me anyway that um, it's not Marie who's not at rest. It's There's something going on with Dale and that, Dale. that he's not really at rest or ready for whatever it is. Right. I, I don't know. What do you, What do you guys think? Um, I think it's important to talk a little bit about who Marie is for yes. those who aren't familiar. Marie, yes. like we said, is his first crush. Yeah. Um, incidentally, 
she dies during the period when he's not wearing the ring yes. after he first receives it. Yeah. Um, she's a very turbulent character. Yeah, mm-hmm. that puts it mildly. Yeah, yeah she starts she's, off as the, the hippie. Well, she's just, well, the, she's his best friend's and, older sister. Yeah. And she's like an early sexual uh, object of, of attraction. She's the older sister. And he about sees. About two years older. Yeah, yeah, I think about two years older. Um, he sees her naked in the yeah, window. Yeah, in the window. Yeah. And, and she helps him get his uh, not tying badge for the Boy Scouts by letting him tie her up in <laughs> her up. room. Um, which is very, I mean, to Dale, he's just like, oh, I'm learning how to tie knots, but there's a sexual component to that. Um, yeah, but then she becomes a hippie well, or a flower child. A, first she becomes a drug addict, doesn't she? Yes. Okay. Um, sort of simultaneously. Yeah. 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 Um, and then, yeah, she goes into like a rehab kind of stage in the hospital. And yeah. then when she comes out, she's found Jesus. Yes. She's a born again yes. Christian. Yes. And, uh, and she kind of sticks with that for most of the rest of yeah. her, yeah. her exposure on the page. She has least. a waterproof Bible that she reads yeah. when she's floating in the lake. Yes. And, and she's very much, um, his first sexual experience is with Marie. Um, she performs oral sex on him at, uh, uh, like, their families go away. Right. Yeah, it's it's the Fourth of July, and they're yeah. away for on uh, a lake somewhere. Yeah. And there's fireworks. And yeah, so they're <laughs> he's they run off into the woods together, and she um, starts blowing him basically, and then the fireworks explode in the in the trees next to them, and so it's it's kind of a clever way of. Because, I mean, yeah, like, you know, we're all writers here. How many times have you written a sex scene where you talked about the climax being an explosion? Mm-hmm, yeah. okay. Right? But it's literally an explosion. It's literally a firework. And then it starts a fire that burns his clothes and her clothes. And they have to escape. Yeah. They have to escape from it. So it's like a very early instance of Dale's sex drive or his sexual experiences being linked with fire um, in a negative way. And there's a quote in particular yeah. when he speaks with his father about that. And they say, Dan- fire is a very dangerous thing not to be taken lightly. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Um, so it's it's like, it's one of those moments that calls back to the show. And uh, definitely it comes up again and again and again throughout this book. But um, but yes, Marie is, is kind of this formative sexual figure, I guess, in his life. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and then when she dies, she she dies like a week later or something, right? Like oh, it's very uh-huh. quick after yeah. that she goes diving and hits her head on a rock at the bottom of the lake and no one's around and no one she drowns. Yeah. Um, and he feels so responsible. He yes. keeps saying that if he had been in love with her, then she would have survived, exactly. but he wasn't. Exactly. So again, not just a sexual figure, but she's an early example of someone that he believes so strongly in the power in his ability to save someone through his love for them and that is another thing that comes up again and again and again for Mm -hmm. him throughout his later relationships so this is where it all starts is with Mm -hmm. this early you know he's 17 or something maybe 16 yeah around there yeah when when this happens so um yeah Mm -hmm. that's interesting. interesting yeah no for sure um but yes, he he dreams of Marie uh, after she's died. He, what's his his next dream is after finding uh, a dead body, and this was an interesting one for me too, um, because 
he's out for a walk or something and he yes. comes across the dead woman right who's been he, stabbed um went with a man uh his friend from college mm. and they were going to get laid in the worst way <laughs> in the worst way according to Howard <laughs> yes and he leaves because he uh doesn't want to get an STD yeah which is the implication and um he's walking back and he hears does he hear somebody does he hear a scream I think no he follows someone he yeah. follows the shadow of a man that's right. yes which that phrase is used multiple times yes mm-hmm. and he loses the suspect and then um he finds a woman who's been stabbed. Yeah, and he's, he the entry is not dated or timed or anything. He just says, oh, God, oh, God. On page 45 of the text that we're reading, which we'll link in the SoundCloud um, comments as well, or in the, the page, he says, the presence of the killer was as real as the shaking in my hand at this moment. And that, to me, suggests that this was something otherworldly at play. But it, in the, the last two episodes, or the, the final movie of Twin Peaks um, season two, Dale and the woman at the diner, and how many people, ha- like Pete, I think, his hand shakes. Yeah. There's handshakes. Yeah. Everybody's hands are shaking, right? So the fact that Dale's hand is shaking at this point, and he's like the evil and the killer was present, that's as real to me as the shaking in my hand. That's another um, kind of callback for us who, who are familiar with the show already at this point that something otherworldly is at play. We don't know what that is, and it's never explained in the show, but it certainly seems to be a link to some kind of dark force. Would you agree, or am I way off base? I definitely agree. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and another thing that, that comes up is that the dream that he has right after this is, again, of Marie... And she's sitting on the edge of his bed, and he says it's n- it wasn't a dream. He's like, it was... It was like a vision. Yeah, exactly. It's more like, like a vision a than a dream. Exactly. And she's telling him to stop. And then he and ends he up... he asks for help. Yes. Hmm. And then he ends up sick again. He ends up in the hospital um, with some unknown illness and wakes up to the vision of, of the nurse helping him and he talks about, you know... Uh, he uses his erection a lot, like as a, an indicator of his good health. If he health. if he can get a, a good strong erection, then he must be healthy. Right. So um, he calls the nurse funny. an angel. Yeah. Which is kind of a um, fire walk with me reference. Yeah. Yes. And uh, yeah, exactly. And uh, and it comes up again. There's there's another reference to angels later on, which um, which we'll get the to avenging as well. Angel. The avenging angel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, when he's in the hospital. Um, He's still having dreams, but they're much more like, um, like subconscious, psychologically confused dreams. They they have no narrative thrust or anything. They're just like images and scary stuff that kind of would bubble up from your from your subconscious and, and like fever dreams almost, right? Yeah. Doesn't he have a fever of one hundred and three? He says. I think so. Yeah. Again, like fevers and fires, and that's when these these strange terrifying dreams and visions come to him they're always when there's when he's sick right so right yeah and in particular because in the vision before those dreams he asks for help doesn't she shake her head no yes exactly she shakes her head no and then he starts having these dreams about falling Mm -hmm. and so there's some sort of denial there that she denies him yes i think that's particular but I can't put my finger on it and then after that sequence he asks is evil tangible yes 
And he says that he's just undergone his first real struggle for his soul and yes. he thinks he's won. Yes, exactly. So, like, it all of a sudden takes on very, like, well, biblical terms in a way, but much grander terms than just simple dreams or um, visions or something. Like, this is now, like, a struggle for his very soul. Like, his, you know, that's that's some deep shit, right? Mm. Like, what's going on there? Aiden, do you have any thoughts? We've been talking a lot. Do you have anything nope, to add? No, you guys are covering it well. <laughs> You're just enjoying the conversation. Yeah, I am, yeah. <laughs> That's wonderful. Um, yeah, so I like that in uh, around 1973, he has, um, he does this, his first uh experiment that he documents where he goes without sleep for a period of days i think he makes it 48 hours or something Um, yes and then falls into sleep and has the most amazing dreams that he talks about being the most extraordinary and vivid dreams i believe i've ever experienced flooded my subconscious and he doesn't remember most of them so it it reminded me that like periods without sleep if you're not sleeping you can't dream but but that leads to even deeper dreams and deeper states of consciousness that um that really uh they illuminate things that he doesn't remember either right Mm -hmm. but he knows that he had those dreams yes and they're the only dreams that he doesn't really seem to be able to recall right and after that point and like you say it's the first of many experiments he really seems to be pushing his limits as a mortal yes with the uh the the no sleep and then also uh holding which he goes skiing oh right that's that's right right. i've totally forgot about that yes he tries to fly um (laughs) and he decides it's not meant for him yes yeah um and then the urination thing yes and uh and he has a sex experiment that he conducts with andy for a period of days that's right yeah um so yeah that's uh it it is it's like he, he goes to the depths of his subconscious and then comes back to reality and decides to push his body to the same place that he went in his mind almost. Mm-hmm. So he's like chasing this high that he he seems to get. And, right. uh, and that seems to be a common thread for him is that he's, he's constantly seeking the next experience. He's constantly looking for the next place to get that high from. When he's little... 13, 14, he goes on his first, I I like to call them walkabouts. He goes on his first walkabout. Yeah. And he says that he's waiting to have an experience. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Which is an interesting way of putting it. It's like, it's like he's just a a vessel that things happen to. And he just wants to encounter these things and have them imprint themselves on him or something. Which fits with the floaty nature. Yeah, exactly. He just floats through life. Yeah. Um, He gravitates towards things. Yeah. And if if it if he hits those things, then he bounces off of them somewhere yes, else. Exactly, like a pinball machine, like in a pinball machine or something, but very gentle and like more, maybe more like the ashes, his mother's ashes in the currents of the stream that they send them out to sea or whatever, right? Like he's just right. he's just gonna go with things, which is interesting. Yeah. But yeah, that's right. I've forgotten about that. That he seeks experience. That's his first walkabout. Is like just waiting for an experience to come yeah. in. Hit him and in the face. He has coffee and pie, and it's his first experience with coffee. Yes. Mm-hmm. And he talks about being like electric. Yeah, it's one of the one of the early references to electricity, electricity yeah. um, coming into things as well, which 
obviously plays a, a huge role in Firewalk with me as well. But um, uh, Eileen, you wanted to talk about um, the blue man that he encounters, which seems to me to be, I don't know if it's a real person or if that's another instance of vision, vision or a dream or something like that. So when does that first happen? That first happens um, approximately between ages 22 and 23. So he's in college mm-hmm. and he looks out the window and sees the blue man is looking up at him. Okay. He's standing outside the building. He goes out of the building to look for evidence of this man and he cannot find any evidence that he was there. Right. And then he goes, there's several things that happen in between there. And then he comes back. Um, the, bl- the blue man shows up outside his building again, looking up the window. Mm-hmm. And there's no other mention of him beyond that. Right. That's the next sort of dreamlike yeah. instance. And what's fascinating about that is that he's, I mean, we don't know what that means. The blue man, is he wearing blue? Is he all blue? Um, is he just like lit in, in blue? Yeah. But blue being a very potent color in Twin Peaks in general. Um, we've noted on the, the podcast before that um, the blue props weren't allowed to be used by like David Lynch's edict. There was no blue allowed at all um, unless it, it was approved by the director or by uh, Lynch himself. Um, So, and we know like the blue rose cases and fire walk with me and uh, questions in a world of blue. So blue is a potent color. Um, The fact, and, and it seems like blue is linked to, the subconscious or something like some kind of um otherworldly state so i think you're right in inferring that the blue man must be some kind of not an omen but like yeah so almost like maybe an internal MacGuffin, almost like something that he's searching for you know yeah i really i really feel like you're right on that because the only time i can think of blue in the show beyond the mentions that you came up with um, Donna wears a really vibrantly blue yes. sweater. Yeah. When she is that when she meets the Tremonts? I think so. I think so, yeah. And so that's like a real extra yeah. normal experience. Yes. And she wears blue in that scene. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the log lady wears blue. She's one of the only characters yeah. aside from Dale who wears blue regularly. Um, yeah. And and she has those red glasses too. I just remembered that. So like red and blue are like when I think of those colors, I think of the log lady. And then Dale wears blue shirts, and he has like the blue FBI windbreaker. And um, so blue is a color that you associate there as well. I think almost insight. Could yeah. Be- a correlation there. And, and also with Major Briggs, too, because he wears his yeah. blue uniform often. And they're all characters who are very tied to their intuition and have that deep insight into things that are happening. Even if they aren't aware of it at the time, they, they seem connected to it, right? Yes. So, um, so yeah, if, if the blue man is literally an, a, an external representation of an internal... I don't know. It's almost like a flag. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's that's kind of sticking up and saying, "Pay attention," right? Right. So, um, but then it's interesting that he doesn't dream, or he at least he doesn't mention any dreams from that point until like from so from about the age of twenty three, he doesn't mention any dreams until nineteen seventy eight. So he's now 
how old? In nineteen seventy eight? No, in nineteen seventy eight he would have been twenty three. Yeah, twenty three. He, he okay. doesn't have any dreams from twenty two for yes. a whole year. He doesn't mention anything. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then and then he starts dreaming of um the, the the people with missing limbs. He dreams about the man the legless man. Yes. Um Oh, what does he say there? Diane, I have just woken from a dream which I fear is more, far more than random synapses discharging electrodes into my subconscious. In it, a man with no legs is sitting across from me in a green chair. For a moment, he says nothing, then begins to laugh and tells me that I cannot run, that it is right behind me and is sure to kill. I then woke to the sound of screaming. The question then is, what is it and how do I stop it? So... That's the first dream mention that he has in several years. So um, the fact that it's something so viscerally terrifying mm-hmm. and... And very reminiscent of, well, the one-armed man. You know, there's yeah. just a lot of Twin Peaks mm-hmm. imagery tied up there. Of course. And it being yeah. potentially Is it Bob, Bob is or it some, is it some, something else? Yeah, some other Because sort of- we get the... What happens next over the course of the next few, um, few years or... Uh, the investigation at this point he's already an FBI agent and he and his partner Winda Merle are investigating all of these mysterious deaths that seem to be tied to organized crime where the victims have their hands cut off or are missing you know fingertips or mm-hmm. their teeth have been knocked out yeah. and um right so it seems like okay on first glance it's like he's just internalizing the things that are that are happening in his waking life which is something we all do with our dreams but but is there something more significant going on there because this is what directly leads to the events surrounding Caroline Caroline. her kidnapping and um, her forced prostitution and then her recovery and then her death so which kind of all seem to be linked to this um, this organized crime thing. But the fact that Dale is dreaming about it suggests that there's something otherworldly. It's not yeah. it's not underworld, it's otherworld, mm-hmm. you know? Well the very next thing that happens after that dream about the legless man is that Wyndham gets Dale off of desk duty because he just um, He'd uh, killed his first man in the line yes. of fight, yeah. or in the line of duty, yeah. and so he was off, off the streets for a while. And yeah. immediately after having that dream, Wyndham gets him back out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, into exactly. The force. Yeah, and and that's fascinating in and of itself. That Wyndham Earl is such a, um, he's more than just a guiding force. He's like an active force in mm-hmm. Dale's life. He recruits him to the FBI. We learn in this book. And is the one who, yeah, gets him off desk duty, requests him as his partner, um, tells him to go on uh, the vacation that he takes to that that South Pacific or that yeah. island. To the um, particular place where Wyndham and Caroline had honeymooned. honeymooned yeah. which is weird. He, um, he really pushes Dale towards yes. falling for Caroline. And yes. He even specifically states that he's come to realize that's something Wyndham did. Yeah, exactly. So... Um, whereas in the show, it seems like these things just kind of happened. In the book, we're getting much more of a sense mm-hmm. that that Wyndham Earl is this Was directing it almost. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yes. Um, Very much so. And that seems to me to suggest that that Wyndham Earl is already at this point connected to some kind of deeper evil force. 
Right. Caroline says after meeting Dale for the first time, she says that she hopes Dale having killed someone um, doesn't do the same thing that yes. it did to Wyndham. Yeah. And then after that, Wyndham goes missing for four days mm-hmm. and we know he's abducted. Yeah. And it's almost almost explicit that he was taken to the lodges. The lodge. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's very clear. It, well, it's like the only interpretation that makes sense. Unless you read it very literally, but yeah, I think like there's... If, yeah, because he was investigating criminals. Like, perhaps... Like, when I first started reading him, like, oh, he just got kidnapped by some bad guy. But then I, was, I realized, no. It's pretty clear the, where he actually yeah, went. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, he gets the phone calls, and he, um, at this point, finds men with... Um, or He finds... Men, the men with no hands were found beforehand. Yes. And then um, he gets a phone call and it leads him to finding the hands right. mm-hmm. of the man, the hands that had been cut off. And yep. then he gets another phone call later on and he finds this other guy without hands is hands. Yeah. Sorry, that was really confusing. <laughs> um, and one of the hands is holding a white yes. piece of cardboard and the other is holding a black piece. And during this entire time, Wyndham Earl's been missing. Yeah, exactly. So that is almost positive. They're, they're squares of cardboard, so they're diamond-shaped kind of, black and white for the black and white lodges. Like, what, what other inference is there to be made there, yeah. right? So, yeah, it kind of has to be. And it does explain a lot of, well, obviously, whatever comes next, right? Wyndham Earl goes crazy and yeah. starts acting up, and he's obsessed with the lodges, which is all stuff we see in the show. So yeah. it definitely, yeah, it's supported right. by all the text. Yeah. Yeah. And really specifically, he gets a phone call from Wyndham where Wyndham says, I'm sinking, I'm sinking, right. which I know, Lindsay, you mentioned yesterday, really recalls the images of Audrey when after she's been recovered from one of Jackson yes. sinking and sinking. Yeah. And she also parallels to Caroline with the forced prostitution aspect and the heroin. Yeah. And then after Wyndham's phone call, he's found. Yeah. And um, he says several things about there being a crack in the door. Yeah. And having seen the abyss. Yeah. And that beyond it, there were wonderful things. And those are some direct lines that are almost word for word the same as some of the dreams that Cooper has had. Exactly. And what's interesting is that those conversations that Wyndham has with Dale are had while Wyndham is under hypnosis, which, I mean, hypnosis is kind of an artificial dream state. So you're tapping into a subconscious state of mind that, um, that could mimic a dream state and that's when Wyndham reveals these things to Dale. So I think that's something we have to pay attention to, right? That Definitely. That there's a link there. Right. Um, and that, after that sequence, that's when he goes on the honeymoon, to the, to the honeymoon yes. location. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, there's exactly. Vacation. Exactly. And then it's during that period in time when Caroline is kidnapped and she's missing for a period of about two months. And then she's recovered. And all of this happens very, very quickly. Like yeah. she... Uh, they go to the safe house and she doesn't seem to be recovering with Wyndham there. So he leaves Dale and Caroline alone and they fall in love. And then it's almost immediately after they consummate their relationship that she is murdered and he is, he's stabbed as well. So, and that kind of ends that whole 
segment. that whole segment. And mm-hmm. and when we come back, Dale Dale doesn't give any tapes for a while. He feels so guilty over Caroline's death. Six months. Yes. Mm-hmm. When he comes back from that period after six months, he's come to the realization that Wyndham Earl was the culprit, was the perpetrator. We got an email from um, John Bernardi, one of our listeners, um, who did the this last week Tuesday's uh, recap podcast with us. Mm-hmm. Um, he wrote his uh, feedback post to the Sparkwood and Twenty One podcast. He sent it to us uh, because we he knew we were doing this this episode, and he really did not like the book at all. But it was one of the things that he mentioned that that we're robbed of that experience of finding out how how Dale finds out that Wyndham Earl is um, Caroline's murderer and responsible for the, the things that she witnessed. And, uh, and I think it's, it's, it's frustrating for me because we don't get to see that and I would have liked to see that, but I don't know. How do you guys feel about not knowing? Yeah, I don't, I feel like it's, it's fine because yeah. we know it already. So going into detail about how, he would have figured he, that out. Yeah, it doesn't really help because, I mean, again, this is released after Cooper's already told the audience on the sure. TV show that Wyndham killed her. So I feel like it's not really worth going into too much I detail guess. about. But at the same time, you want to find out how it impacted him mm-hmm. to come to this realization, which you don't really get because it is so much later. Yeah. He's kind of just moved on already and yeah. is is already prepared for it. So that that's my take, but... I think that, and another another thing that um, has been criticized about this whole segment is how quickly yeah. the whole Caroline scenario is over. They fall in love, they consummate the relationship. He says that he believes in the power of love to conquer evil, and yeah. then, bang, they're She's attacked dead. and yeah. she dies. Yeah. And I think that the speed at which it all happens serves to really reinforce his... Uh, bad bad relationship with just having sex in general with anyone. Sure, sure. Um, and I think that the six months is in character. Okay. Mm-hmm. The way that the book has determined his character, sure. I should yeah. say. Yes. Um, it's in character for Book Cooper yeah. to not say anything to anyone for six months. Yes, and for him to... We don't know where to, he is. Yeah, Again. To, you get too close to him and he pulls away completely. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He retreats into himself or whatever, but he... he well, he's recovering from stab He is too, too yeah, yes, yeah, right. But yeah, it's, it's very Every much. time after he comes back from one of those long periods where we don't know where he's been, he's always firmly entrenched in enlightenment ideas yes. and mm-hmm. zen And very much going back to those things, he relies on them. And then slowly it degrades as he becomes more firmly entrenched in establishment and in policies and in the government Mm -hmm. and his job. Yeah, exactly. Sorry, just to jump on that and jump back, I would say, to Twin Peaks, is that it's interesting how that kind of parallel does play out in the series as well. He comes in and he is the intuitive force behind, you know, every investigative angle and then by the end of the series, like we're we're approaching near the end of the the run for us, and he's kind of lost a lot of that intuition. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's become ingrained into the life of Twin Peaks. He's literally dressed like them. He's become a deputy. He's become a local. Really, he's he's re-entered a new social, civilization. Civilization, yeah. and he's and he's basically lost a lot of what he, made him so powerful as as a force for good in the yeah. early right. 
especially season one. Yeah. Um, season two, obviously, interacting with the spirits as well. Right. So, yeah, I think that that is kind of... I, I, I don't know. Like, that's kind of what bothers me about season two, mm-hmm. is that Cooper has kind of lost that drive, and I don't really see why. Um, but it is played out again here, so I think it it's at least consistent... That's interesting. I hadn't extent. I hadn't thought of that because we've talked about that on the podcast that that he he seems to step back from his intuitive abilities, and it seems like here we still don't know why. But it, you're right; like at least it's consistent. Yeah, like maybe right before show. he alive, arrived in Twin Peaks, he was at a meditative retreat sure. for six weeks or, or something, and whatever. then he loses it all in six weeks in Twin Peaks. You yeah, know? like I guess it's 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 a potential way of reading that. Sure. Um, but it it doesn't really feel. I mean, it works better in the book because you see it recurring, yeah, and, and and it is something that's built up, and you're like, yeah, okay, that's how that's how he operates. Is he he tries to integrate with people because he he wants to love and he wants to build a positive relationship with the people around him, mm-hmm. and then this terrible things happen, so he retreats to nature, yeah, um, and maybe that's. You know, yeah, in the book, you can kind of see that repeated. But in the series... In the show, it just happens... It just happens once, yeah. kind of, over the right. series of 22 episodes yeah. or 30 episodes. So yeah. it's a little different. Yeah. Um, and keeping in mind the shortness of the timeline... Yes. I was talking with Lindsay about this, oh, maybe a couple weeks ago already. Yeah. How I keep forgetting that there's really not that much time that happens over the course of the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like it a little over a month. long. Yeah. yeah. It feels so long. Yeah. But I think it only serves to highlight his changeable nature. Sure. And the intensity of the of the experience too, right? Right. Um, definitely that. And particularly after the time when he's gone for three years and he returns, there's um a excerpt from one of his friends that specifically states that he looked intense. Yes. I think yes. intense is a really good word to describe how he is after those experiences. Right. Yeah. That's the one where, where his friend notices that he's he says something about the coffee being damn fine or something, right? Yes. And yeah, it's like, it's definitely a uh, that three-year period must have been very formative for him. Well, we know that he lost his virginity on that period, so um, that in and of itself would probably be enough for this Dale anyway, yeah. for Bookdale. Yes, for this Dale. Yeah. Um, the last mention of dreams in in the book is uh, a very familiar dream where mm-hmm. he encounters a little man and a very beautiful woman and they dance in his dream. And there's no way that I can think of that you can read that as anything other than the little man from another place and Laura. Laura Palmer. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, but in The Secret Diary of Laura Palmer, she also had this dream yeah. about meeting him before, before she died. Before, yeah, exactly. So I feel like they had the same dream once already, and then he has the same dream three days after he arrives or whenever. Right. To uh, actually where she tells him who killed her. So this is a good place to segue into our discussion of death and evil and potentially the Lodge influences throughout the book. Um, so Cooper encounters a lot of death, as we mentioned, in his short life. Uh, very early on, his uh, grandmother Cooper dies of a stroke in front of him while she's baking a cherry pie, um, which kind of makes his affinity for cherry pie a little pathological, mm. not going to lie. All I can say <laughs> is that 
I automatically thought of pushing daisies. Yes. For those who are unfamiliar about a pie maker <laughs> whose mother dies while baking a cherry pie. Right. Um, automatically thought of that. Yeah. Yeah, that has to be a reference, like from the the filmmakers or the the showrunners of yeah. Pushing Daisies. Well, and yeah, it's Brian Fuller, so right. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, um, then Tom's brother, his friend Tom's yes, brother, dies in Vietnam, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, his mother dies of an aneurysm. Yeah. Before that, we have the card player. Oh, that's right. Well. Oh, yeah, that's, that's right. right. Yeah, his his that. we we haven't talked about his uncle Al, who is the card his counter Al. and a magician. My favorite. <laughs> Who's also a Bible seller. So, <laughs> He's a man of many talents. Yeah, the, I, I'm guessing this is his father's brother. And yeah. Yes, it is. Yeah. He says that specifically. Okay. And um, he taught Dale to count cards. Yes, exactly. Which is a nice little tie-in to what we see in the show, because we know in the show he's a card counter. He he does that at One-Eyed Jacks. But it's a nice little link, too, between um, uh, the idea of the cards that come into play with Windermere at the end of the show with the uh, the queens and Dale is the uh, the king of spades, spades? I think. Yeah. Um, yes. And uh, and and some links to the tarot as well, which uh, is mm. kind of a little bit more tenuous. But um, you know, if you jump into the occult reading of Twin Peaks, it's mm. it's definitely worth noting. Um, yeah. So the card player. Uh, Marie dies from drowning. There's yep. the dead woman in the alley who's stabbed, and that's where his hand is shaking for the first time. Um, Betty. Betty, who dies from a gunshot. When Betty was, uh, he d- he does an uh, internship or something at a mental hospital, and he befriends this woman named Betty, who um, ends up taking an orderly hostage and is shot by uh police or security guards or something and later dies of her wounds but cooper is there because he or she requested him they'd spoken earlier yes and she believed he was an avenging angel there to destroy her yes which is is really interesting that that he would be described in those terms he certainly wouldn't see himself as any kind of avenging angel angel, or an angel at all probably but um the fact also that Betty thinks that the world would burn is another interesting thing that she says. And the fact that she's that she's mentally ill is um, is significant, too. I think a lot of the women that Dale encounters in his life are mentally ill. Um, Marie certainly has her moments. His Lena, mother, his... mate, Lena, definitely. Betty. Um, so. And then once he's in Twin Peaks. Yeah. He's... Almost everyone. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean... Uh, and, and Annie is someone who, you know, went into a convent because she attempted suicide. So there's there's definitely a link. And Caroline, I think, is dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder as well, or, or mm-hmm. probably more than that, too. So Repression, trauma. Yeah, exactly. So, so Dale is drawn to people. He wants to save these people. Mm-hmm. Um, he feels tremendous guilt over not being able to save these people, as we talked about with Marie, but um, and also with Caroline. So... It, to be called an avenging angel is probably not something that would fit with his yeah his understanding. But as we've just laid out, death seems to follow him around it quite a does. bit. You know, mm-hmm. so yes, you know, per, I mean, was she right? Was Betty right? I mean, at the end of the day, she dies because well, d- yeah. well, I mean, she blames it on his appearance there, right? Sure. She took the hostage and then 
he went there to help and then she winds up dead. So, I mean... She could blame him for that. Yeah, she could blame him for that. And and it's it's interesting because, yeah, everyone he really does love um, dies. And, and <laughs> random people, like all these criminals that end up dying that he's been dreaming about uh, various mm-hmm. different ways of dismembering, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, there's the old man that he meets on the island who commits suicide. Mm-hmm. Uh, Caroline, Teresa. Mm-hmm. Um... So there's, and he, he takes a life. He, he kills a bird yeah. as well at one point too. So, yes. um, which we haven't talked about, but maybe we will in this segment. So, um, actually let's start there. Let's talk about the birds because we mentioned the birds earlier in the dream. And then he has this, uh, this moment. I forget how old he is when that happens. Um, let me see. I believe he may have been, because he was at the Boy Scout camp. Yes. So he might have been 14 at that okay. point. And it's a raven, um, right? Or a crow or something that he kills. It's a crow. Yeah. Yes. He is, okay, he's 15. Okay. He's just gone off to the, the camp. Yeah. And um, he's upset because there's a group of boys that he calls the Nazis. Right. And, and he's very much firm about justice for that. And yeah. he kills the bird. He seems to be alone in this segment. He yeah. just is super alone. He kills the bird and um, he feels elation. And then he realizes that he's alone. And at first read, it seems like he feels bad about it. Yeah. And then if you reread it, it doesn't seem like he does at it, all. It's almost like he's uh, conquered something. And he, like, that's how I read it when, when he says, like, now it's just me, I'm all alone or whatever. It's like the bird, when it was him and the bird, it was him versus the bird. And Mm. he emerged victorious, kind of like the first time that he felt that this was a battle for his soul and he emerged victorious. This is like another, another instance of that. Yeah. So, so conquering the birds that plagued his mother's dreams Mm -hmm. and he doesn't he's not fond of them so which makes it interesting when he, when we get to this part about robin which is his first fbi his partner at the academy and her name is robin and robins are birds so and she's one of the only women that he doesn't sleep with sleep with or which, kill or kill <laughs> well he does and, kill her in the simulation oh yeah that's yeah. true I forgot but that, yeah. but she doesn't actually die in real life so mm-hmm. it's, and the substitute for sex is they go to the shooting range yes. and guns are a phallic symbol of course explosions yeah etc yeah ejections of metaphorical stuff. <laughs> yeah. yes very much so it's the only thing they have is is one passionate memorable kiss i think he calls it and six mm-hmm. rounds discharged from their service revolvers or whatever which is just so yeah i really i really like that part but yeah. um so yeah, but but Aiden, you're right. Your your point that death kind of follows him around is something that um, Eileen, you brought this up yesterday, and it's it's a theory that you and I have encountered on Tumblr. Um, yes. Uh, that that Dale Cooper is either or both uh, the Antichrist or the Moonchild. It is my pet theory. It is. Um, a, I'm big fan of those sorts of mythos yeah and he follows in this book particularly he really follows the same trajectory mm-hmm. as a lot of those characters yeah. um Damien from the omen in particular if anybody'd seen that yeah that show recently where 
no matter what he does or where he goes, death follows him. And eventually his job kind of masks that because yes. he enters a field where he's seeing death. He's, um, doesn't he go in, he goes in violent crimes. Yeah. Is where he's assigned. Yeah. So it becomes harder to tell when death is following him and when he's following death. But right. up until that point, he's always the one that's encountering yeah. people. Yeah. And the circumstances, and I, I don't mean to implicate him, but the circumstances are always that he is alone yes. when he finds these dead people. Yeah. Which, when I first read the book, it made me think that he was the one who was being possessed or taken over and was doing the killing himself, which I, I realize is not... Um, I don't think that's a common theory. I think yeah. that was just me trying to make sense of this. This, right. your theory makes much more sense, but it does work, right? Like it does kind of explain why death is following him around mm-hmm. everywhere. Yeah. And he doesn't seem to understand it and talks about how good is hard to engage. Yes. But evil is simple. Yes. And he doesn't necessarily desire it, but it happens nonetheless. Right. And, and, uh, this is a perfect way to segue into this because he keeps searching for evil and he says that um yeah like good is hard to find evil is everywhere he firmly believes uh, early on that good cannot defeat evil um and and then the whole talk about evil as an infection that can be passed from person to person and uh and then during his missing years one of the entries is that evil has a face so he he's very certain, like you said earlier, that he that evil exists in this world as a separate thing. Um, when he joins the FBI, he realizes that that's not compatible with their worldview, but it's something right. that he's struggling with internally. Mm-hmm. Um, and he joined the FBI with the intention of fighting evil. Yes, yep. yeah. And, uh, and then is stymied at every turn. Like, he can't really seem to grasp get anywhere with it right he has this huge desire from childhood forward to be a protector it's Mm -hmm. like his innate want right is to protect but he can never achieve that protection every time he thinks he's gotten there it's taken away yeah exactly um and i think it's interesting that when when he finally is uh in love with caroline and he admits that he's in love with her he believes that love is greater than evil and that love is the thing that can maybe defeat evil, which is not something that would be in it from anybody else that would feel like an earnest I, truth or, or something. But for him, well, I, maybe it is trite. I don't know. But it seems like a little bit of a delusion, though. It feels like it's it's him swinging wildly back to the other side. Right. Yes. Um, rather than like, I think maybe he does earnestly believe that that's true. But it's not a realistic thing. Right. Yeah, I think it's more of an aspirational Maybe. comment more than anything. Yeah. It's like, this is what I want to believe is true. Right. Um, he's trying to convince himself. Yeah, 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 more than anything. And I think, you know, when he's caught up in that feeling of love, it's a powerful feeling. Well, of course. He could he could think, yes, this is, love this will is stronger vanquish evil. than anything. Yeah. And then she dies. Yeah. And I think that's really telling, especially in the context of when this story is being published when it was released yeah. in relation to his um, his relationship with Annie mm-hmm. and right. how he 
there's no good reason for him to have gotten into a relationship with her knowing as he does about Wyndham Earl yep. being on the loose. But he just throws caution to the wind and yep. he puts his whole self into it, declares he loves her, has sex with her within 72 hours. Yeah. yeah. And then she's chosen yeah. by Wyndham. Exactly. And she's the avatar of Caroline. She exactly. is Caroline. Yeah. There is no Annie. There is only Caroline. Right. No, it's so true. And so it's like, it's like, here's this person who has spent his whole life up to this point, trying to learn things, trying to know things, trying to to defeat this evil. And he keeps falling into the same mistakes over and over and over again. It's like, um, it's like these, these, uh, like psychic patterns that he's falling into or something, right? He just, he cannot get out of it. We we didn't we kind of talked about the old man on the island as well who he visits mm-hmm. who That's... saw death in his face. He says that he saw he sees death in his face and there's nothing he can tell him. This is and the it's same my favorite part of the book. It's great, right? Like this is the same man that Dale is is I think it's fairly clear that this is the same guy who taught Wyndham Earl how to play chess. Yes. So, um and this is the place Wyndham Earl sent him there to take a vacation um and then Caroline is kidnapped while he's gone. So, but while he's there, he meets this man, and this man says he sees death in Dale's face, and then that night or the next night commits suicide. Right, um, and he says a couple interesting things before he leaves Dale. He says, "May God stop him." Right. And who is him? Right. Is really ambiguous. Is yeah. it Dale? Is it Bob? Is it Wyndham? Yeah. And then the other thing that he says that's repeated by Wyndham Earl later on is. You ask the wrong question. Yeah. Or no, after he finds the old man dead, um, he has a memory jumble. There's a whole segment's really strange. There's no time dates, and mm-hmm. then he wakes up and he says that he's been in, in a drug-induced state and yes. he doesn't know how it happened. Yeah. Mm, and it, I, it's it's kind of suspicious. It makes me think that um, that he was followed there and and Wyndham Earl. Uh, orchestrated that drug-induced state, um, or it, if if that's just the only way that Dale can uh, codify what's it. happened to him, that maybe this is a lodge event that's taken place. Mm-hmm. That he's I, I'm been, more inclined to believe that. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so it's like evil just follows him. Death follows him. Um, we talked a little bit about how fire plays a role. Uh, there's f- like more than 50 49? mentions 49 or 50 mentions in the book um a fire and and fire is something that's not wanted it's something that's that's scary um and the things that are scary to dale are the things that are evil so it seems again just fire is is a bad thing fire is an evil thing um but it always seems to happen there's so many times when he has an encounter with fire after having a sexual encounter with a woman it's just, I, I don't know what to make of that. <laughs> Fire and sex have often been equated in yeah. literature and in film and yeah. all over. And we talked a lot about Dale in terms of, in, in terms of all his sexual experiences. Mm-hmm. He is the desirer. Right. He is the one that does the desiring. Yeah. Yes, very, 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 it. It, it almost never happens 
until the end when he goes undercover in a gay club. That's the only time where somebody seems to desire him as much as he desires others. Mm-hmm. And it happens five times in one night. And he's wondering why that is. Like he doesn't quite understand what he's doing differently that would make him so desirous to other people. Because up until that point, well, he's been the one doing yeah. all the desire. He's also been the male in the relationship. I think sure, that's yeah. kind of part of what they're getting at is like men do a lot of the desiring and, right. and yeah. stuff. So. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Definitely. But yeah, um, so he's the desirer, mm-hmm. and the women that he desires are a devoured. Devoured, yeah, right. So, so they're just and and I mean, fire can devour things. Mm-hmm. So right. if his if if Dale's desire is represented by fire, then the fire that occurs in reality during these moments of heightened emotion or heightened sexual tension are a physical manifestation of his desiring to devour the women that he is in these relationships with. Right. And I think this is especially heightened by the fact that every time he's with a woman or around a woman or wants a woman that he cannot have, he has these little insidious thoughts about what he would do yes. to people. Yes. The earliest instance is the mailbox blowing up. And right. We haven't talked about why that is. Right. Um, a girl comes to his school whose name is Anne. Yeah. She's blonde and blue-eyed. I, it's a thing. <laughs> yeah. He's got a type. Yeah. I think he does, yes. And um, it turns out that she's a lesbian. Mm-hmm. And yeah. she ends up with this other girl named Nancy. And before... Um, before Anne leaves, Nancy buys her, her a Willa Cather book. Right. And Willa Cather was a um, lesbian author. Right. Yeah. Really, really prominent figure. Yeah. I missed that the first time I read it. So did um, I. Yeah. Totally went over my head. Didn't yeah, even yeah. catch that. So before she is leaving during the school year, he's so upset that Nancy has her affection mm-hmm. that he discusses what, things that he could do. Um, he says he wants to maybe burn down Anne's house right. so that they'll take her in, or he'll get really sick so that she'll come to his bedside. And yeah. he ends up taking it out on the mailbox. He blows up Nancy's mailbox. Yeah. And then um, he feels better. <laughs> yes, he feels a lot better. Yeah. And with Andy, she's married. He yeah. discovers. Yeah. And her husband gets in an accident. Yeah. And he says something about wishing him more hurt and I don't remember in which regard and he was really mad at um Lena's mother because Lena one of his other conquests she refuses to have sex with him until she's recovered her relationship with her mother or gotten over whatever the problem is and he says something about a war crimes trial it's a war crimes trial that's what it was yes he's like a war crimes trial would be too good for her um, which is extreme, yeah. but it's only because he can't have sex with the daughter. And yeah. then what's what's fascinating is in that instance, she does Lena does take him to meet her parents, and then she tells him that the only other time a boyfriend of hers has met uh, her parents, her mother slept with him. So he's like, uh, she tells him like, don't get up in the middle of the night because my mom will jump you basically. And then that's almost exactly what happens. Like, like Lena's mother comes to him and they go somewhere and they're on a bed somewhere. And then the, they're the, on Dale's bed. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then Lena 
you discover she's an arsonist. She sets the place on fire rather than have Dale uh, sleep with her mother, I guess. She sets right. the place on fire and then and then they're driving home afterwards and Dale realizes that that Lena set the fire because he can smell the gasoline on her clothes. And they have sex in the car and it's like the car is still moving and they're, they're having sex and then the, the car crashes and then there's like a, an amusing incident with the farmer who's Angus, cow, Angus beef cows. It's just such an absurd yeah. thing. And then after that, she checks herself into a mental institution yes. and yeah. can't remember him yeah. and thinks that he is her brother. Yes, yeah. yeah. And that's the end of their relationship. Yeah, yeah. that's it. And that's that's like the longest period of time that he has a relationship, really. Yeah. Because yeah. you know, all that time that he wasn't having sex, but he was wanted waiting to, to have he was sex. Waiting for it, exactly. Um, and then at the end there's nothing to show for it. She doesn't even remember who he is. So it's it's uh, that's that's really fascinating that that um, that fire plays such an important role in his sexual uh, experience uh, nature plays another role as well in in mm-hmm. in all of this because almost every time he does have sexual relations with someone it's out in nature or it's it's not in a it's in the forest or it's in a car or um, it's in a pond the, he and, and yeah. Andy when they have their first um, it's during a, I think like a May Day celebration or something yeah. and uh, they go away they, there's a fire present there but Dale doesn't want to go near the fire so they go away from the fire into the woods and end up in like making love and rolling around and landing in a pond yep. and near then the faculty barbecue the way is the faculty yeah. bonfire yeah exactly and certainly this is his most fulfilling sexual relationship is with Andy. Andy. Um, but, yeah. But that's the extent of their relationship. That is. Well, yeah. they do They do have their sex. They do, do uh, have a, a period of time where they lock themselves in a motel room. Well, as I'm saying, it's purely yes. sexual. It is. There's it's purely sexual. Else, yeah, yeah, there's no emotional connection. Well, she's married, right? Yeah. So, and that's interesting, too, that that's brought up. Mm-hmm. When in the point, show, yeah. in the show, he's such a Boy Scout, it's shocking that you find out that he had an affair with his partner's wife. But in the book, it's like, Dale was going to jump anything that moved. It didn't matter. Yeah. This this isn't the first time he's had relationships with someone he shouldn't have been having relationships with. Dale so. Cooper's sex fiend. Yes. Yeah. I have a note. What I've written is poor, horny Dale. Because that's what he, he is. Actually, yeah, he says he's horny on yeah. multiple occasions. Yes. Yeah. And, and he's glad at one point when um, he's only thinking about sex three or four times a day as opposed to the regular hourly occurrence. Yeah. Yeah. Which is just, I mean... Maybe Aiden, you can speak to this as a, as the only you know male in this discussion. Is that really how it is? Oh, you're lucky if it's down to the hour. <laughs> down to the hour. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So Dale's. It's impressive that it's three three to four times yeah, a day. Yeah, that's well, or depressing depending on how you look at it. But I mean, yeah. I mean, he's 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 a kind of guy who masters his own mind. He's not uh, he's not yeah. subject to whim. Yeah, okay. And anymore. that's a really good segue because I think a lot of the times when he's not being fulfilled sexually, mm-hmm. he looks to his job mm-hmm. and yeah. he looks to school yeah. and he looks to other rational things. Yes. Yeah. And he tries to immerse himself in those things. Yeah. yeah. So again, it's like sex is that enlightenment thing and then school or his job is that establishment thing. It's the, the natural versus the man-made that mm-hmm. um, he's he's kind of 
vacillating between these two. And he never, he, he, like you said, uh, he can't find a middle ground. There's no happy medium for him. It's all one or all the other. Um, and it does lead him to a lot of these very um, unfulfilling moments, doesn't it, yeah. right? Yeah. They almost Especially all with his relationships. in some manner of dissatisfaction. Yeah, exactly. And like literally every single one of his relationships is doomed. There, there are people that um, either they're mentally ill, like Marie or Lena, or they're unavailable, like Anne, Andy, um, Robin, Robin, who um, because of their connection with being yeah. co-workers, I guess, is why they can't. Caroline being married again. Um, Annie, who's really kind of... Shouldn't be available. Shouldn't, like, she's... she's <laughs> yeah. uh, well, I would I would argue she's she's mentally unprepared. Unprepared, yeah. 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 She she should not be no uh, at all person of interest. No, yeah. exactly. But he's drawn to her. Um, I have a because note. He wants to protect her. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And he thinks that he can protect with his love. Mm-hmm. That's what he believes is the ultimate force. Well, and that's why it's it's interesting for me that. Uh, he he has this love evil dichotomy because yes. that's that's also how the black and white lodges are presented. Yes, exactly. By, by Hawk, right in the yeah. in the series is that well fear, but fear being evil. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I guess that's that's more accurate. Yeah, it's more of an internal state there. But um, yeah, but that is like love is the positive thing that that can open yeah. all doorways, and that's how he goes in to save Annie. Is thinking mm-hmm. I love her, therefore nothing bad will happen mm-hmm. because love will open the way to the light white lodge. Not understanding that. He has his own fear too, like right. The, the, and Annie's fear is present there as well. Fear, yeah. So it's it's um, he just I think fundamentally misunderstands these mm-hmm. emotional repercussions and the the things that are happening emotionally. Yeah. Um, he I have a note here that says that he loves quickly and is driven by lust in every case, except for Caroline. Caroline is yes. one where it's like a slow burn mm-hmm. and it's very much orchestrated by Wyndham Merle, right? He pushes um, them together. Exactly. And and it's very it's it's an opportunity. It's the first time that he can be in that protector role and have an impact, I think, because he over the course of his FBI career up to that point, he's rescued that eight year old girl who was kidnapped and he's been unable to solve um, some murders, the the ones where he finds the bodies buried under the tenement. Right. Um that we're all women of a certain age. He feels responsible for not being able to solve that. Um, he's so, even unfulfilled after saving the child. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Like it's, He's haunted by that, right? So Caroline represents the first chance he's had to, um, to actually protect someone. And I think that's... Um, we were. I was listening to uh, Twin Peaks Unwrapped, their uh, podcast about the, the autobiography. And... And they were talking about this as well, that it's, um, that Wyndham Earl, because he's been such a, a, a presence in Dale's life, um, kind of orchestrating things from the outside, that he's been pushing them together for so long, that Wyndham Earl must have known that Dale had this predilection, this, uh, this drive to protect that is kind of, um, finds its seat in his lust, you know? So he would, he wanted... And it's it's terribly cruel that he would do this to his own wife, but it's Wyndham Earl, so I guess. Yeah. But yeah, that he would push these two people together. Um, Just for the pleasure of taking yeah, it away. Exactly. 
um, knowing full well that Dale would fall in love with her because mm-hmm. he needs to protect her. Yeah. And he needs to protect her by sleeping with her. Mm-hmm. So. I just want to talk about this one a little bit because mm-hmm. it's the whole timing of this. Um, Eileen, you'd mentioned that it was it felt off to a lot of people, the whole how quickly everything happened with Wyndham mm-hmm. Earl and Caroline and everything. The other thing that felt off for me is um, the timing of it in terms of his life, because this basically happens right after he, he's been an FBI agent for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In the TV series, I got the sense that it was like maybe two or three years earlier. He says it's four years. Oh, he does actually say in, that in, it, in the series. He says it's four years in the, uh, in here okay. it's um, Caroline dies. Yeah. I think it's, yeah. No, yeah, because it felt like it was maybe so... Maybe it's 10 years. Maybe it's 10 years because she dies in 1979 and the show takes place in 1989. So yeah. it's 10 years. So, 10 yeah. years. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. And that, that feels like... In, in the series, it felt very fresh. Like yeah. he was still recovering. He he couldn't believe that, you know, he still basically was in love with Caroline. Like yeah. he had her picture in, the, in his wallet and everything. Yeah. Right. And, you know, four years feels like a, an acceptable time frame for that kind yeah. of stuff, right? But 10 years... Like there was all yeah. like there's all this other stuff that happens in the book uh, between Ben and his arrival mm-hmm. in Twin Peaks, and like none all of, of his really, stuff with the DEA. Yeah, the you know, he meets Denise and... or Dennis at the time, yeah. and mm-hmm. and all of that's like kind of interesting, but it's really detracting from his narrative thrust. I think this is what leads to a lot of um, the the sense of floating is that that that's really the defining moment for this period of his of his life, the thirteen to thirty five year period. Caroline is the defining moment, and yet it gets very little time. It gets yeah, very and like it's five very, pages or something yeah, is devoted to Caroline yeah. in the safe house. Yeah, and it and it's almost nothing. And and yet he's done all this other stuff since, and he seems like a perfectly fine individual who hasn't been affected. Whereas yeah. we know that he's bringing some baggage with him to Twin Peaks. Right, and that baggage yeah. wouldn't necessarily be that big if a 10-year gap and yeah, all this stuff you think happened. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So right. I, I just wanted to mention that, and I found that very off-putting as I was reading, like, whoa, 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 he's just 23 or 24 when he when this yeah. happens? That doesn't seem quite accurate. So right. I just, just a comment. Yeah, no, just, right. and that's, no, I agree. that's a perfect uh, ass- assessment of it because it does speak to the inconsistencies that happen in the book, that the time doesn't, seem to matter and and we still haven't gotten to that but we're getting there (laughs) Mm -hmm. we're real close we are really close um something that one of our uh twitter followers kevin mccarty said um he was wondering about the link between windham roll and uh coop's doppelganger in the red room um in the season or series finale Mm -hmm. season it's it's we can call it the season Season, two finale now right because we're gonna get a season three so it's a season two finale oh my god that's so exciting anyway um where um i'll read his comment that he made just give me two seconds one one thousand shut up i didn't mean literally okay well then don't say two seconds just give me a few seconds stop that'd be three pedantic (laughs) okay what does he say I noticed on my last rewatch that Doppelganger Dale seems to manifest right after Bob takes Wyndham Earl's soul. He even seems to come from the area where Bob seemingly throws it. Is there a connection between Doppel- Doppelganger Dale and Wyndham Earl? Mm. And that got me thinking because, um, and again, with the secret history of Twin Peaks and the opening to multiple realities or multiple... Mm-hmm. Um, timelines anyway or something that is 
there a chance that the Dale Cooper in this book is not the same Dale Cooper that is in the TV show? And I think I had agreed with you on that point um, pretty well because there are so many inconsistencies on a character level. Right. Things that don't quite make sense. I think, um, Aiden, you mentioned that right away at the beginning of our discussion. Yeah, it seems like um, you can... I mean, I don't think that we're going to get an answer to that in season three. I honestly don't think David Lynch has even read this book. So it's not like we're going to, he's going to sit down and explain every inconsistency from this book. But Mark I Frost think, might have. Well, I'm sure he did. <laughs> he, you know, probably. So he probably incorporated this kind of stuff. I'm sure. And that, and that into the book, I think maybe. But um, I definitely think so. But I think what, what we're going to see or what we could see is that there will be an opening made to allow for this book to exist as the, I called it the um, Doppelkoop supervillain origin story. Um, that this is the version of, this is the doppelganger had his own life in his own reality and this is his story and then he's the one that is taken into the lodge and, and is the evil force that then comes out at the end of, of season two. And with that theory, I mean, there are parts of it that I agree with and parts of it that I wouldn't yep. on that fact. Yeah. But it also um, gives my pet project about the Antichrist theory an avenue. Right. Because I don't see that so much with the coop that we know mm-hmm. in the show. Right. Um, I guess my my confusion between whether it's really doppelganger coop Mm -hmm. has his own life right would then be okay at the end of the story then who's really running around yeah is it doppelganger coop or is it coop inhabited by bob and i mean we see bob in the mirror but that's all questions that are essentially unanswerable yes at this point who knows what season three will bring right but oh yeah (laughs) i mean i guess i guess david lynch did come out and say that um that it was the doppelganger being released into the the world and that um that it's it's less a possession and more of this other self that's come out but who knows what will be incorporated in season three it's it's uh we've only got a few more weeks left to wait so we'll find out shortly (laughs) Oh maybe, maybe, maybe. Yeah, maybe not. Yeah, maybe it'll just be more confusing. <laughs> um, but yeah, that that is one kind of interesting way to to look at it. Anyway, from from to try and explain it, I think there there is a way to read this book if you don't care about the dates. I think John might have mentioned that in his mm-hmm. email to us that if you don't really care about the dates, if you're not going to get pedantic and super hung up on it then you can just read it and enjoy it and it's it exists and it's fun and then you can put yeah. it away on the shelf and forget about it. Um, but for people like us who want to pick it apart and we read this book and it's like it's like an opening to a gateway. We just want to know mm-hmm. what, what the mystery is and what does this mean. And, and there are probably a, a bunch of ways that you can interpret that. Um, we would love to hear any more theories that people have, how they explain the the inconsistencies between the book and the show. Um, this yeah. is just one of yeah, one of ours. Did you have through. any, Aiden, that you thought of? No, or? I read it pretty straight. You I was did? like, okay. yeah, this is just a not perfectly written mm-hmm. adaptation of, of Dale Cooper's early years. Right. Um, but at the same time, 
I'm open to. I mean, yeah. Twin Peaks is filled with mysteries. So, yes, yes, and, filled with know, secrets. Uh, yes, secrets are yeah. different from mysteries, Aiden. Yes, yes, dear. <laughs> uh, they are, but it's also you know a place full of supernatural stuff. Sure. So yeah. You yeah. having having a separate Cooper? I'll buy it. Sure. But, I mean, we see another and, one. We see one in the yeah. In there the, are two in the waiting room. Right? So, so yeah. Huh. There's multiple Coopers. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, we also have the, the added fact in terms of inconsistencies that this is an autobiography. It's a narration. Yeah. Um, and he's an unreliable narrator. Right. We just sort of can understand that of course. from the beginning, too. Of course. Yeah, absolutely. And that's definitely um, something to consider. As much as he wants to believe in, in fact, and which, again, is something very different from the Coop we get on the show... Um, that he is so wedded to facts in this book. Um, there's only so much that you can do with your own subjective experience. Mm-hmm. It's only your truth. Yeah. It's not right. the objective and, and truth. I found that was it. one interesting thing is uh, in the, the book, they they have little snippets from other characters. Yes. And it's it's a very interesting take because like uh it's the brother uh marie's brother yeah says that well my cooper fell in love for the first time well not counting the time he tied up my sister yeah which means a mm-hmm. he knows <laughs> about tying up he, did he the, listen to the tapes or yeah, was he there what, or like what? what was going on and yeah. well but not only that it's it's a it's like obviously he, this person has much more understanding of Cooper's situation than Cooper did at 13 or 14. Right. Like yeah. this guy knew like, Oh no, he, he had something going for my sister yeah. when he tied her up. He, he yeah. didn't sign up to do that just be, for getting his, uh, his Eagle Not Scout badge. badge. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> uh, and, and that's, th- that's an interesting little device because it's kind of not really, but sort of similar to what happens in, the Diary of Laura Palmer, where mm-hmm. uh, Bob appears on page. Right. And you're like, well, this is a totally separate voice and it, it provides a bit of a different point of view. Um, yeah. And here it's kind of the same thing, right? It's it's yeah. it's someone outside dropping in a little tidbit. Yeah. Um, and and it kind of just puts some of his entries into perspective. Yeah. The one about the sis, uh, Marie being an obvious choice. Um, something else about, well, there was the, the friend who became a priest... I right. don't remember who that one right. is. But it, he he was talking about Dale's religious experiences, wasn't he? I think it? so. Cars. Maybe. Yeah, then, something <laughs> about a, a Dodge Dart. Yeah. 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 And That's then right. there is the one um, with his roommate from college, right. Howard, Howard, who ends up going into the military. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And yeah, and they, they kind of provide little juxtapositions and stuff. The, yeah. the, my favorite one is Diane's, though. Because oh, yeah. in in the book we get confirmation that Diane exists. Yeah. She speaks to us. Yeah. Well, on the page. Yeah. So yeah, so, do you want to move on to these last little? Yeah, we have just well, a few. Yeah, um, you probably have a list as well. Um, that uh, of like stuff that link up with the show. Right. Yes, I made up um, some notes on that mm-hmm. right away. The very first couple entries. Um, and there's two mentions of the first one, one right away and then one later on. Um, Dale says he has sweaty palms. Right. So that's a callback to Audrey. Yes. And then right after that, he says that he has um, asparagus for dinner. Yep. So that's a Laura Palmer mention. The bird thing crops yep. up a couple times where he says that he doesn't like birds. Right. We talked a little bit about that. Yep. Cherry pie and coffee. And coffee. He has on his first little walkabout. Then he meets Star in April, who we didn't really talk about. Yeah, we didn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, So briefly, they're a pair of hippies. Yeah. And um, he ends up driving their van for them while they get extremely high and have a lot of sex. Yeah. 
and um, he has some interesting experiences with them, but the particular thing that is reminiscent of the TV show is that they claim they're going to D.C. to chain themselves to the doors of the Pentagon. Yeah. Very civil disobedient Audrey Horn season Audrey. two, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, we talked a little bit about Diane being mentioned in the in the book. The I'm sinking in the heroin linkage between Audrey and Caroline and Wyndham. Um, yeah. We talked about the dream in the rain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, the card counting thing came up as well. Yeah. Nice little callback there. Right. Um, um, poetry and sex. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Because, are correlated. Yes, and we talked about this a bit last night, didn't we? Um, yeah. That uh, he he first starts writing poetry, bad poetry, when he's still a virgin, um, after meeting April, who later we find out is his... She, she comes back and she's his student teacher when he's in school still. And, uh, and he tries his hand at writing poetry because they write poetry when they're on their their whatever drive around um and his poetry is very bad uh Mm. but it's definitely correlated to his sexual feelings which are unrequited and unfulfilled from april he's stymied by star first by star Mm. the boyfriend and then later by mr uh hood Horde something that it starts with an H. Yeah, yeah uh, the American Studies professor though yeah. that um, is apparently living with, with or sleeping with anyway, sleeping April. with April, the student teacher. Um, so, and and both of those times he has uh, feelings for April and resentment towards the the men in question. Um, right. Yeah, and then the poetry comes back, doesn't it? With um, with Wyndham. Yes. She sends him a couple tapes, and yes. they contain riddles and poems. Yeah. And we were discussing, and there's no real correlation, ultimately, the, the fact that poetry for Dale is synonymous with sex and yeah. relationships. And yeah. he wrote Caroline poems, and we're like, okay, what is he thinking when Wyndham writes him a poem? Right. Might be a little confusing, I would imagine. <laughs> and it's funny because Wyndham's poems are malicious, right? Like yeah. in the series, yeah. especially, he's when he's writing a poem, it's to cause pain and yeah. suffering, right? Well, and I mean, but but to uh, <laughs> to get um, to push that a little further, I mean, sex is something that should be beautiful and life-changing and transformative but for dale it is associated with bad things right Mm -hmm. yeah so for um for the poem from windham earl and for poetry to represent sex and then for the poem from windham earl to be evil i think that would just be another link between sex and evil yeah right yeah for dale definitely which is interesting um there's also the fact that uh one of the poems that windham sends references uh i didn't realize this until i was reading it um with eileen last night and it's a children's poem isn't it yeah it's called the backwards rhyme and apparently it's a traditional american folk rhyme i couldn't tell you if it's true or not Mm -hmm. um but i know of it because i have a I, i have this really old textbook yeah from 64 it's a children's textbook and entirely possible that young Dale would have had a textbook similar to this. Right. 
and it has this rhyme in it. Yes. Um, so the original rhyme is altered by Wyndham. Right. And changes the last two lines, I think, right? And he changes the first line a little bit. Okay. So the poem in that Wyndham sends is one dark day in the middle of the night, two dead agents got up to fight. So that's also altered right. to agents. Mm-hmm. And he says dark day. Yeah. Back to back, they faced each other, drew their swords and shot each other. A deaf policeman heard the noise, but Cooper was dead, just like Wyndham's wife. Mm-hmm. I have seen the future and it is now. Yeah. And the original rhyme, it's a bright day in the middle of the night. Yeah. And instead of being dead agents, they're dead boys. Um, after the deaf policeman line, that's when everything changes in Wyndham's poem. Yeah. And, um, it says in, in the original rhyme, a deaf policeman heard the noise, came and shot the two dead boys. If you do not believe this lie is true, ask the blind man. He saw it too. Yeah. And you came up with a really interesting correlation. Well, it's it's something that, again, I've seen um, other people referencing on Tumblr and Twitter that um, the deaf policeman seems, it just jumped out at me that Gordon Cole, he's he's deaf or or very hard of hearing, and uh, or is he or is he mm-hmm. and and what is his role in all of this? And some of the things that people have come up with is that they they think maybe Gordon Cole might have had a larger role to play in setting up um, Wyndham Earl and Dale Cooper, and that he might not be what he seems and it's not yeah it's not something that i like to think about because i love gordon but it's something that i could definitely see lynch playing with yeah making gordon cole evil and even in the secret history of twin peaks there's a list of all the agents that have met unfortunate ends And, I mean, you got Chet Desmond, Sam Stanley, uh, Philip Jeffries, Dale Cooper, um, Wynda Merle. These are all people who worked for Gordon, worked on cases with Gordon. The only one left standing is Albert. Mm-hmm. Please don't make Albert bad, too. <laughs> like, it's just it just makes it very suspicious. And, and yeah. for this poem to come out, maybe Wyndham knew that... You know, they mentioned that they thought there was a mole in the FBI. Coop says that. He thinks that there's a mole in the FBI. He thinks that that's Wyndham. Um, yeah. Is it possible that that mole was actually Gordon Cole? And that all of this was being set up and orchestrated to make it look like Wyndham Merle was the, the perpetrator. But really, Gordon had more to do with it, with it than... And especially after he sends the, the immediate uh, entry after he receives those poems. Yeah has to do with Gordon. Yeah. The case that immediately follows those poems is Gordon asking him to handle Teresa Banks. Yeah. So. And right. before that, he was working for the DEA. Right. And even before that, he had and said that it was hard mm-hmm. to do. Right. But he tried really hard and finally succeeded in convincing them to change him over to counter intel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where he was for six years and there's no tapes. Yes. Right. Which makes sense because of the nature of the job. reasons. Yeah, yeah. I feel really strangely, and I know Aiden, you sort of were talking about this. I feel so strangely about the counterintelligence portion mm. because we have 
absolutely no information yeah. mm-hmm. between that time and pretty much right before. Yeah. There's there's a lot missing yeah. mm-hmm. in there. Yeah. And it comes on the heels of um, a couple cases that he did. Um, the the particular case with um, the serial killer who was who was killing the male prostitutes. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he is talking about how he wants to get out of um, violent crimes. Yeah. So there's Caroline dies. He takes the six months. He comes back. And then he's on violent crimes. And after that, he decides he wants to go to counter intel. Yeah. But he's had too much. Yeah. And he moves on to counter intel. And then, then we have nothing. Yeah. We have nothing at all. But coming out of that into the DEA, he's suddenly a lot more like the Dale Cooper that we're introduced to in the show. Yes, very much There's a massive changeover of personality and the way, the things he talks about, the way he talks about them, just seems and sounds so much more like Dale. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which kind of, I guess, makes sense if, if you're charting this book as one long quest or journey towards his uh, ultimate self which is what we see in the show then maybe it's just you know yeah but then it's it's kind of infuriating as a reader to say like well a significant portion of that yeah. is just cut off from us yes conveniently you know? oh for sure yeah and it's it, it would be I mean I would consider that to be a, a cop-out on Scott's Scott Frost's part yeah to not it feels dive so into that. yeah exactly yeah, yeah you how get- do you get from I I want to be out of violent crimes. The rest is more of the same. Yeah. I want to get out of violent crimes. A nice bit of embezzlement or espionage is what the doctor ordered. Yeah. And how do you get from he's still reeling ultimately? I don't think six months is long enough no. for his psyche to go back to violent crimes. Yeah, no kidding. After Caroline. Yeah. And then go six years without knowing anything about him and he's a totally different person yeah exactly oh, it is odd it is very odd so it's it's one of those things that that people bring up a lot when they talk about why they don't like this book is is moments like that um it's definitely not a um comparing it to i mean aiden i think you ranked it in the three books that you would consider part of twin peaks canon quote unquote um this would be the third yeah. in that ranking. Yeah. It's not... Uh, I, what, what would you put well, first? Oh, Secret History. Secret, hi- secret History? Yeah. Twin Peaks. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah. Although the secret, the secret Diary is really then... great as well. But yeah. No, this one just lacked... It lacked a connection to... Well, it, no, it has some, but it just... Yeah, it's lacking. Yeah. I will just describe it that way. There's... there's um, Something missing. There's something it's, missing. It's a frustrating lack. Yeah. Yeah. It's... Yeah. it's less of a I wouldn't I wouldn't call it disappointment for myself Mm -hmm. just because I think there's still so much to get out of it yeah and in that way it reminds me of the show where there's enough that goes unsaid and unexplained there's that element of wanting to know frustration right Mm -hmm. yeah but then yeah certain points just kind of feel like a cop-out yeah and it's it's I wonder if it's the format that they chose to write it in because Scott Frost is a is a capable writer, and yes. some and his episodes that he's he wrote two for um for the for the series, um two episodes of the show, 
and they're really good. They're really funny. They capture the voice really well of the townspeople. I think both he and Mark Frost are very much interested in in the lives of the people in Twin Peaks and and in Dale Cooper. So I'm glad that he chose to write it and it wasn't some rando that they picked to do it. But but I wonder if the format was unnecessarily restrictive in some way. And if it's, that's why yeah. this... It's really limiting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, it um, is. I think it was your previous your previous guest. He, he, he sent an email to you mm-hmm. um, and mentioned that if it had been if there had been more letters, because yes. occasionally we get letters, mm-hmm. yes. if it had been a mix of that, yes, and tapes that it might have been better, right, could have done more with it. Yeah, um, I think what might have been interesting, and this goes along with what we were saying about the excerpts from the people that he knows that yeah. we get. What if we were not reading his letters to other people, but their letters back to him? Right. I was just thinking the same thing, because those are really great moments when we get like an outsider's perspective on, on Dale at these critical moments in his life. That would be really cool if we saw like a letter from Marie more letters from Marie or uh, from dad. Andy, from his dad. We never yeah. get to hear anything from his dad. Um, well, small snippets about yeah, moon but, maps. But, that's but it's, all, it. it's all from Dale's and perspective. Shamrock. Yeah, and Shamrock, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think that would, be, that would be really interesting if they had done that. But, mm-hmm. um, but the, I think they went with the gimmick of Cooper having this tape recorder and wanting to explore that. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I get it, but yeah, you're right. It is, it is limiting. And and it shows like this book, it, like Aiden said, it's just lacking something. Ultimately, the idea of the tape recorder is what draws people to reading it. Yes, it's all coop all the time. Yeah, which is what I think a lot of people desire. Yes, going into this book. Yes, and because Cooper is so withdrawn from confronting the portions of his life that are emotionally turbulent yeah that it would be more fulfilling if we had other person's point of view right rather than just cooper yes and that's exactly it because um that's what makes his uh interactions on the show so interesting is the is the fact of those interactions right it's how he relates to those other people and and john did bring that up in his email to us that um one of the other reasons why it feels why this feels flat is because Cooper is really only a character when you see him on screen and it's because of Kyle MacLachlan's delivery and Mm. his performance which does come through in this like it does feel in parts like it is uh, it's captured his cadence I could read it with his voice in my mind Um, but it doesn't carry through the entire yeah. work and that is um that is frustrating yeah. um the contrast with that is is with laura where she only comes alive john says when she's on the page and i agree with john i disagree with some of it because i think that the backstory is worth looking into it's something that i want to know more about but i'm not like we said it's i'm not sure that this is the right format for delving mm-hmm. into that backstory just because of the way that we are introduced to Cooper and we see him through, he's our guide into the town, but we also get to see other people's reactions to him. And that is what is making, uh, that's what makes his character so interesting, I think, is the way he relates to those people. So 
right? Because we're less Cooper, even though that's usually the sort of role he would take on at the beginning, you're entering the town with him. Yes. Mm -hmm. But in the end, we're not Cooper. We're the people perceiving Cooper. Exactly. Yeah. So there's like a, a switch there. Yeah. And, uh, and that's what, what is, is difficult to capture in a book where it's only first person narration and this kind of, of, of frame narrative yeah. using the the audiobooks is necessarily self-limiting mm -hmm. in that respect yeah but, um, i feel like both this one and the secret diary both ran into that issue at times yeah. where it's like oh i'm writing a first person narration only about a specific point in time mm -hmm. that has to fit in with a larger narrative that i'm not in control of yep mm, you're gonna run into problems and they, which is they where the secret did. history of twin peaks doesn't run into those problems yeah. because it's a collection of a bunch of people's right yeah it's it's a it's newspaper and articles and letters and receipts and it's a bunch of stuff right and inherently it's filled with well history yes. depending on how you take that word right and so of course it it's less of it's less um, subjective and more objective yes mm -hmm. exactly just and just by virtue of, of the uh, the way that it's structured, mm -hmm. so um, so this is a, a lesson for writers, I think, on how. Uh, what did Marshall McLuhan say that the medium is the message? No one knows right. who that is. What? Nobody knows who that is. He's Canadian. Everybody knows who Marshall McLuhan is. Moment. No, you know who Marshall McLuhan is, right? I'm. I've heard the quote, but not the name. Oh, okay. Well. There you go. But anyway, Marshall McLuhan, a uh, local man born down the street here in, in Edmonton. But um, but yeah, the medium is the message. So it's it's in a sense. I'm sure I'm misrepresenting that quote. But but yeah, it, there's it's more to it. Than there's that, there's yeah. a lot more to it than that. But but still, it's like this is this is what you choose to present your your argument in. That is going to influence the way that the message is perceived. I still enjoy this book an yeah. awful lot. Yeah, I like reading it. Not only for the funny parts, but just to read the um, the dreams and yeah. for the implications that it presents more yes. than how it presents them. And I think that's the important takeaway that I have from this book is that it's less about the details and more about the feeling and the, like you said, the implication of what we're reading. It's um, a mood or a, a something else other than like... If you don't get too caught up in those details, you can pull something from this. And I think that that is that Dale Cooper's been haunted by something for a very long time, and he brings that with him to Twin Peaks, very much like what Jean Renault accuses him of doing in the scene at Dead Dog Farm. And ultimately, I think that's why the story, um, My Life, My Tapes, feels so aimless. Yeah. Because the real end of the story is beyond life and death right that's the conclusion yeah of what we read yeah not entering twin peaks right but finally actually making it to where his life has been leading him. yes exactly and i think i think that's that's exactly if you want to talk about a narrative thrust that would be it it's that these people have been bouncing him around here there and everywhere pushing him to the lodges mm-hmm any final thoughts? I think we I covered think we covered it. Yeah. A lot of things. We yeah. did. This it and we covered a, um, from every single book that 
Well, of yeah. those three, we yeah. did. It's kind of a nice summary because this is the final ancillary novel that we are dealing with on the podcast. So I guess that's it. Eileen, yeah. thank you so much for coming on and, and talking with us for me. a long time. Yeah. This was a very deep conversation. Um, Eileen, do you, you're on Twitter and Tumblr. Do you want to give your uh, how people can contact you? Yeah, I'm on Twitter. Um, my handle there, is that what they call it? I think so. Handle, yeah. Um, uh, is at steel underscore Nina. So that are, I know you'll link that. Yeah. Um, You've linked me before in your podcast. Yeah. And um, if you want to find me on Tumblr, Mulder Torture. Yeah. Sorry. (laughs) Old holdover. Um, You're an X-Files fan, aren't you? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Read on. Yeah, you can check me out either of those places. Perfect. And I would highly encourage you to do so because you are a lovely person and you have lots to say about uh, not just this, but... Uh, Star Wars and um, Once Upon a Time and a bunch of different uh, fandoms that you that you are involved in. So um, definitely check out Eileen on the interwebs. Uh, thanks again for coming on. Thanks, listeners, for yeah. uh, tuning. tuning in and staying with us for a long time. <laughs> this was a this was a long episode. If you stuck with yeah. us to the end, yes. here's a cookie. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Aiden, for having me. It's um, been awesome. Right on. Well, we're glad. And uh, happy listening. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. That was good. (laughs) If you're enjoying the show and want to join the conversation, you can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash bickeringpeaks, all one word. You can also follow us on Twitter. That's at bickeringpeaks. Or you can head over to iTunes and leave us a review or a comment. We'd love to hear from you.